Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain share and defend the Christian message. So some of you might be wondering why my bookshelves are half empty in the background there. That is because we are in the process of moving. So we're moving to a new location. We're going to have a new location for the Think um, Institute study. And um, very soon you'll see me with a slightly different background, same shelves, same books, but a little bit different in the background, different colored walls, things like that. Also, quick piece of housekeeping. I wanted to let you know that I am going to be representing the Think Institute at the upcoming Fight, Laugh, Feast conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, that's going to be happening in um, uh, on October 1st through the 3rd. So be sure to check us out there if you're going there. Also, I'll be at the Cruciform conference in Indianapolis on the 23rd and 24th of October. I'll be teaching a breakout session there. So come check us out, support the Think Institute and um, learn a lot. Both of those conferences are going to be great. But you didn't tune in today to hear me talk about conferences. You tuned in because today is going to be one of the most epic episodes of the Think Podcast I think that we've ever done. I can say that with confidence because today we are talking about Demons. Demons. Many use the word, but we seem to use it in different ways. We use it metaphorically as when we say he's wrestling with his demons about characters facing inner conflict. But demons as actual spiritual entities also crop up in various religions, including Christianity, Hinduism, and even in popular entertainment like the film Paranormal Activity, uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, things like that. Now within Christianity, Attitudes towards demons seem to vary by denomination. Some pay them practically no attention at all, whereas others find demons under every rock and they focus lots and lots of attention on binding demons, casting out demons, etc. And then, of course, if you've listened to Christian hip hop back in the 1990s, you can probably remember many a track talking about slaying demons and uh, fighting against demons. Um, The song Demon Executor by T-Bone comes to mind. So what exactly are demons really? That's what we're here to talk about today. And on on this episode, my guest is Dr. Michael Heiser, and he's going to reveal the truth about what the Bible and history actually teaches about demons. Michael S. Heiser is a scholar of the Bible and its ancient context. He earned his MA in ancient history from UPenn and his MA and PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in uh, Hebrew, Biblical, and Semitic studies. He's going to correct me if I got that wrong. Um, He's taught biblical studies for over 20 years, and he's worked as the scholar-in-residence at Lagos Bible Software and is currently the executive director of the School of Theology at Celebration Church in Jacksonville, Florida. 
Dr. Heiser has written several best-selling books on the unseen realm, topics like angels, topics like Enoch and the Watchers, The Forgotten Mission of Jesus Christ. He's written a ton of other books with uh, and over 100 articles for Bible Study Magazine and several peer-reviewed articles in academic journals. As if that wasn't enough, Dr. Heiser also hosts the Naked Bible Podcast, which seeks to strip the Bible and, and its interpretation from denominational um, traditions and to really uncover what the Bible is actually saying. And he has a nonprofit corporation called Miklat, which provides free translations of his biblical studies content in over 20 languages. As you can see, Dr. Mike Heiser is the perfect person to bring on to talk about the topic of demons. And he's going to be discussing his book called Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness with me today on our show. If you have questions or comments, drop them below. We will be addressing some of those at the end. So without any further ado, Dr. Mike Heiser, welcome to the Think Podcast. All right, thanks for having me. When, when you said epic show, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to show my pug. I have a pug on my lap. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Pugs, pugs are like bacon, you know, they make everything better, you know. Just <laughs> Very true. Yeah, very true. Can so you? He's a, he's asleep. Oh, he's, he's comfy. So, but okay. yeah, that's it, okay. your 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 description just brought it out of me. Like, yeah, I should show the bug. <laughs> but, uh, we'll let him go. Yeah, and can you tell us uh, the the name of your pug? Oh, this one is Norman. I have two pugs. One is Maury. It's short for Moriarty, and oh. this one's Norman for Norman Bates. We like to name our pugs after fictional villains. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. They're Very cool. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. I've um, I've really been looking forward to this, and I know a lot of our listeners and viewers have as well. Um, I have to say, when I started reading your book, Demons, which I just finished um, yesterday, I I was not sure what to expect. I really wasn't. I knew you had written about the unseen realm. Mm -hmm. I knew that um, had, from had what I had you read unseen realm first. I did not read unseen okay. realm. I haven't read it, but I've but yeah. yeah, but I've had a number of people uh, recommend it to me. And from from what I could tell, it seemed like no. This is going to maybe be a funny way of describing it, but it seemed like the stuff that you were writing about was the same stuff that I was researching in high school on the most obscure message boards of the internet, you know, the Nephilim and the Watchers and and all the stuff that I felt like I couldn't really talk to people about until it was like, you know, around a campfire late at night or something. Mm -hmm. And and here you are bringing them to the mainstream. And so I just have to know, how did you get into this subject of the supernatural, the unseen realm? Well, the, the, the real truth is you on those message boards, you were discussing things that would have been very basic and elementary to a first century Jew. Um, and that, that points to the whole problem that I wasn't aware of, you know, when I hit my PhD program, I wasn't aware of it yet, but that, that what we think we know about demons or the supernatural world in evangelical believing Christian circles is largely the product of our own traditions. The, the items, you know, statements, points of doctrine, interpretations that have been filtered to us 
through centuries and even millennia of traditions that do not match or align with how a first century Jew would have been interpreting their own Old Testament. I mean, that, that's the honest truth of it. And, and the reason I was so unaware of it was, again, because I was like anybody else. You know, I, I, I'm a modern person. I was, you know, became a Christian when I was 16. You know, you, I you know, came to the Lord in, in a certain specific, you know, Christian context. And that context, again, had its own way of, you know, thinking about all this stuff and frankly just didn't consider it important. What I'm going to say here is not an exaggeration. This is literally true. Uh, I went to Bible college. I went to seminary and I went to grad school. So I, I had... If you, if you throw Bible college in with it, I had 18 years of formal education in biblical studies. I spent one clock hour, not credit hour, clock hour, 60 minutes in 18 years on the topic of angels and demons. Now, when you do that, when you go through that and it's hard to get out of that with the without the impression that this stuff just isn't very important. It's peripheral. It's kind of weird. Who gives a rip? Who cares? And I was of the same mindset until you know my second year in, in my PhD program. And again, I was not a newbie. I had two master's degrees. I'm in a doctoral program in Hebrew studies. I've taught for five years at that point. I've taught 12, 15 different classes. I mean, I you know, I, I considered myself as someone who sort of knew the ropes of the Bible, and I'm, I want to get a PhD and be a professor and all that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until somebody confronted me, you know, a friend I had in the Hebrew department uh, who was also a Christian. We were killing some time before church. I described this in Unseen Realm. You know, it's either the preface or the intro. And I don't know what we talked about. But I'll never forget the way the conversation ended because it was life changing. He just he handed me his Hebrew Bible and he said, You need to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew. And so I did. It wasn't very, you know, Elohim, term for God. Elohim Nitzavadatel. Okay, God, capital G. We know it's a singular capital G God there because Nitzav is a singular participle. Sorry for the grammar spasm. But it's actually important. You know, God, capital G, takes his stand or stands in the divine council. And then the next line in verse one is Bekarev Elohim Yishpot, in the midst of the gods, in the midst of Elohim, he passes judgment. And for the next three verses, God is excoriating other Elohim in this council. And he is deeply angry at them. And you get to verse six, and he says to these, to the rest of the group there, you know, I said to, you, to all of you, plural pronoun, you are Elohim, all of you, sons, plural of the Most High, but you're going to die like men. And then the psalm ends with the psalmist asking God, begging God to rise up and take the nations. You know, I, I my first thought was. When I, when I read Psalm 82, you know, verse 1 especially, this sounds like a pantheon, God among the gods. And, they're, and the psalmist, they're real because he's judging them. 
you know, I, I didn't know how real they were in the biblical worldview because I nobody had ever asked me to consider that. Gods are just idols. You know, if you can't get away with that in Psalm 89. Okay, you can't get away with the gods here being just men. That's what you're going to read in evangelical commentaries. That's what I've always read. You know, yeah. you get to Psalm 89, you have the same council language, the same sons of God, sons of the Most High in Psalm 82, sons of God in Psalm 89, and the council is in the skies. It's in the heavenlies. Okay, there's not a bunch of Israelite dudes in the skies ruling the nations of the earth. You know, you don't have a bunch of, of men in a heavenly council. Right? You just don't. I mean, it, it just didn't make any sense at all. And so this is what set me on the path to, to getting interested in the supernatural worldview of the biblical writers. You know, and once you go down this path, you run into Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, which, which I had never seen before either. Basically because I'm reading scripture in English translations or the traditional Masoretic text, and no one ever introduced me to the Dead Sea Scroll reading for, for Deuteronomy 32, 8. You know, we can talk about that a little bit later, but those are some cosmic bad guys, you know, so it, that are associated with Babel, the dividing up of the nations. You know, you have a supernatural rebellion element there. I'd never seen it. And I had been taught to ignore Genesis 6. You know, those aren't gods either. The sons of God there, that might mean supernatural beings everywhere else except for that passage, because if there's supernatural beings in Genesis 6 doing this thing with human women and producing Nephilim, well, that's just too weird for our theology, so we're not going to consider that. You know, even though every first century Jew and every Christian interpreter for the first 300 years of the church believed they were supernatural beings, but nobody told me that either. So I was provoked. You know, people ask me how I get into this. I was providentially poked in the eye. Basically, God is God's way of saying, you know, you don't know a whole lot. <laughs> There's a lot that just isn't even on your plate. You, right. you, you literally don't know what you don't know. And we're going to do something about that now because God had a plan, you know, for, for you know, me and what I was supposed to be doing that I – I mean, it was totally out of the blue. Like I said, 60 minutes, 60 minutes, a clock hour in 18 years. And now my view is that this stuff is core to biblical theology. Because what God, the way God relates to and talks about and, and their, their entree into the biblical story is, is right away in Genesis 1. All of that stuff is a template for the way God looks at his human family, whom he wants to be partners with him to run things in this realm, you know, the, the earthly realm. And it explains all sorts of strange passages. It explains vocabulary. Why are holy ones in the Old Testament, you know, 99% of the time supernatural beings, but the plural holy ones is never used of supernatural beings in the New Testament. It's used of human believers. Does that pattern mean anything? Oh, yeah, it does. Yeah. What does that mean? You'd have to go all the way. This is this is why I asked if you'd read Unseen Realm, because Unseen yeah. Realm is a Genesis to Revelation overview. Okay. I, ref, I refer to it as building the matrix for you. Okay. It's a Genesis to Revelation overview of the meta narrative of Scripture with a specific eye toward how the supernatural world intersects with the human world intentionally in Scripture. And so the short answer to your question 
is that what God originally wanted, and when he creates the earth, when he, you know, and, he's, and he creates humans after the earth you know, is made, God wants a family. He already has a family, a supernatural family. The sons of God and Job 38 are there to witness the creation of the world. I mean, he's already got a family. He's already got you know, supernatural kids, okay, children. And so what, what God wants is, is to do that again. You know, I'm going to make them a little bit different this time. They're going to be embodied, so they need a place to live. Okay, they're not going to be like us. You know, we're, we're spirit beings. We don't need bodies. So I've got to make a place for them to live. And even after I make a place for them to live, they can't come to us or to me to be part of our family. i got to go to them. Okay, and so God does that. He, he stations, you know, the humans in a little place called Eden, and this is where God is in the story. Where God is, his entourage is as well. We know divine throne room scenes from elsewhere in the Bible. God is never alone. He has servants with him. He's, he's, he's the king. Okay, think about the metaphors, okay? He is the king. He has a court with an entourage. He has a family already. But what God wants is he wants to, to create these things we'll call humans. And right out of the gate, I'm going to make them fit for sacred space. It's the most normal thing in the world for God to think of a human as belonging in his presence. Just because this is the way it was originally planned. And I want them to be with, with me and with us and us with them. I'm going to make them my imagers, my proxies, my representatives, just like I made you guys. That is ultimately the reason for the plurals in Genesis 1. Because you're my representatives, my partners in getting things done here in, in the supernatural realm. I'm going to do the same thing with these, these people on earth. And we're going to enjoy the things I have made. We're going to do the things I need done. And you know what? I don't need any of you because I'm God. I just like to create beings like myself who will give me fellowship so that I can enjoy their participation with me in enjoying wonderful things and doing wonderful things. This, so when, when humanity, at the end of the road, when we are in union with Christ as believers, of course we're called holy ones. Of course we are, because that's what we're supposed to be from the very beginning. You know, and there's all sorts of this Genesis to Revelation, these threads that run through Scripture, that connect the dots of scripture. What we have in our churches, I'll just say this, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I say all sorts of controversial things, and, and if you really think about it, they shouldn't be controversial. But I'll say this, we have a lot of people in churches that have a good amount of Bible knowledge. I mean, they care about the Bible, they study it. They have a good, good bit of Bible under the belt. They've got lots of data points in their head, but they have no framework at all for having these things connect together. Okay, and, and so what I try to do in Unseen Realm is I try to build you the framework. I try to build you the matrix, okay? So that, that you will begin to see how all the weird passages in the Bible play a role in a larger meta-narrative, how they belong there, how we, we cut off meaning and, and we produce distortion and shallowness in our biblical theology when we deny the biblical writers their own worldview, their own supernatural worldview. Right. You know, when we impose our modernity on people living in the first century or a thousand BC, I mean, who do we think we are? 
you know, at the end of the day, who do we think we are to sit in judgment on the Bible when it comes to their view of things that are outside the natural world, outside our, our domain of science, hmm. outside our senses? Who do we think we are? So what, what would you say, Mike, is the biggest misconception? And, and maybe this can be sort of um, the the touch point for the rest of our conversation. Okay. Um, and I really, I, I, I want to get to the three rebellions, but what is the biggest misconception that people get, that, that people have about demons? What do most people get wrong? Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of them, but I'll, I'll pick, I'll pick these two because they sort of go together. The biggest misconception is that all of the powers of darkness are demons. They are not. Okay. And that demons are fallen angels. They are not. Right. Some of the other bad guys are. That's an appropriate label for them. Um, you know, the, another one I'd throw in is is this this myth, this Christian myth, that when Satan rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. Okay, I'm sorry. That's Milton's Paradise Lost or Dante's Inferno. There isn't a single Bible verse anywhere for that. The only time you get even the word third or three with the word angel anywhere in the Bible is Revelation 12, which is the last book of the Bible. And if you read Revelation 12, there, the war in heaven described there erupts because of the birth of the Messiah. We have to kill him. It has nothing to do with, with some events before the fall. Nothing at all. But this is what we're taught. That's an example of an idea that is taught as doctrine that is completely absent from the biblical text. So that would be my top three, I guess. And they're all sort of interrelated. You know, the, the terminology we use is a big problem. But, you know, I, that, those are all good starting points because, like I said, what we think we know is largely mediated to us through Christian tradition. Uh, there are historical reasons why things are said, you know, about the yeah. natural world, and we just inherit them. It's not sinister. It just the, it's just the way it is. So like a true scholar, then I, I asked you for one misconception and you gave me three, which is, uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> I, I have no idea how we're going to unpack all of this in the, in the, the our time allotment. So we can, like, I, if you I, want to go to the three rebellions, I mean, I, I don't have any rules for these interviews. You can ask me what you want. You can throw out a, a script if you have one. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. You can, you can do what you want. Well, no, this, what I'm, what I'm, uh, what I'm getting at here is we might need to, uh, we might need to have you back on at some point. Um, I need to read your book, The Unseen Realm. That's, well, let me, let, let, for the sake of your listeners, again, Unseen Realm is sort of what I'm known for. It came out in 2015. It's, it's probably pushing 160, 170,000 copies sold now. So the response has been significant. Yeah. I have over 2,000 reviews and most of the, I don't have, I mean, I, I, the book's been reviewed like in journals, you know, like scholars do review it, you know, and just fine. But most of those reviews are just lay people and pastors, you know, just people in the trenches, you know. So it, it's a book with lots of footnotes. It's an academic book. So to sell, you know, 160, 70,000 of those is almost unheard of. But don't let that Im intimidate you. If you don't typically read books with footnotes, I had a good editor. It's very readable. Read the reviews. And, you know, people look at it and, and it's it's so, one of the recent reviews just said it's like paradigm crushing or something like that, you know, worldview shattering. And, and it, it is, and I'll say that because that's what happened to me. Okay. 
it, a lot of it is is I'm taking you through my journey now. You know, things I basically just had to rethink from start to finish. You know, beginning line to end line. Okay, here we go. And but it's not a theory of everything. It is the framework. If you if you really understood the content of Unseen Realm, you would have the matrix. You would have a framework for being able to read your Bible more intelligently and see how things interconnect and whatnot. A book like Demons and Angels is sort of a drill down into the framework. We're going to take one topic now and expand upon it. So that's that's the essential difference. Okay. Okay. So so very good. So let's do that. Let's let's drill down. And in your book. Um, one of the things that was surprising to me, and I'm sure caught a lot of people off guard, is you talk about three mm -hmm. rebellions, three, you might call them angelic or, or spiritual rebellions. Mm -hmm. it, it, these are Not taught in one. the Bible. What's that? <laughs> not just one. <laughs> not just one, right? So it's not just what you mentioned in Revelation about uh, the, the tail of the yeah. serpent or the dragon sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky. Or, or even just in Genesis 3. You know, it's, that, right. that, that's typically what we're taught. Yeah. Right. So so I think if we talk about each of these rebellions, um, by doing so, what we'll, what we'll be able to do is we'll be able to address a lot of the questions that okay. people are going to talk about, like what are the Nephilim, who are the sons of God, how does the book of Enoch factor in? So let's talk about these three rebellions and maybe we can just, let's just start with the first one um, and just, just dive right in, as you said, really drill down. And the first rebellion is the rebellion of the serpent in Eden. Can you unpack that a little bit? And then um, maybe tell us what does the Bible say about the serpent and what, what does Genesis not reveal about the serpent that maybe sometimes we read into that? Yeah. So people have to understand, again, I, I'm not I'm not making stuff up. I don't have to. There's just too much material anyway. You know, what, what, what I'm trying to do is for the old when you read the Old Testament, I want the ancient Israelite living in your head. When you read the New Testament, I want the first century Jew living in your head. Okay. So if you walked up to an Israelite toward the end of the Old Testament period or a first century Jew, again, somebody who you know, was a reader, I mean, not everybody can read, obviously, but somebody who was literate, and you said, hey, you know, you know, why is the world such a mess? Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much chaos and depravity? I mean, what, why is that? Now, if you asked a Christian, a modern evangelical Christian that, you'd go, oh, that's the fall, dummy. Don't you read your Bible in Genesis 3? Okay. That is not the answer you'd get if you were talking to an Israelite or a first century Jew. They would say, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a mess. Now, the first one is what happens in Eden. And then there's these other two, which we'll get to. So regarding the first one, you have the serpent. And, and my take, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I can't remember which things I say in which book, but I, I know I make this point in both books. Genesis 3 is not a zoology lesson. Okay, we are dealing with more in Genesis 3 than a snake. This is not a mere snake. This is not a mere member of the animal kingdom. Now, we know that from the New Testament because... You know, the, the, the serpent is referred to as the devil and Satan and, and you know, all this. Even, even in the ancient world, though, without that, you look at other ancient Near Eastern texts, 
people weren't idiots, okay? They know when animals start talking in their literature, their first suspicion is that the gods are up to something. Animals don't talk. So there, there's a supernatural power behind this, what's going on here. You know, they don't think, oh, animals used to talk before, you know, millions of years of evolution. No, they're, they're not doing any of that. It's nonsense. Okay, they know that the gods are up to something. And all I'm arguing for in Genesis 3 is that we read Genesis 3 for what it is. This is a supernatural being. In Unseen Realm, I talk about the term nakash. Okay, yes, it, it can mean snake, you know, as a noun. Okay, that root. It's a normal word. If, if, it's, if you're supposed to look at, at what's in Genesis as a participial form, it means the one who practices divination or dispenses knowledge. Okay, it doesn't mean snake. That's what it means. If it's an adjectival form, okay, that, that is substantivized. Sorry for the grammar speak again. It means the shining one. Okay. I think all three of these things are in play because, you know, the, the appearance is sort of a stock description for the way supernatural beings get depicted. But linguistically, it, do you think that that came about because the serpent became associated with someone who gives knowledge? Do you think that's where that, that I, 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 I came from? And, and across the board in ancient Near Eastern texts, when you have these episodes with talking animals, it's usually a supernatural being either in that form or speaking through something, again, to either inform or deceive. Like Balaam's donkey. Stuff like that, sure. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, outside, you know, external literature is full of this kind of thing. You know, so, so in other words, Genesis 3 alone is not a zoology lesson. Oh, serpents used to have legs. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, right. again, it's this, it's this uber literalizing that we sort of reflexively teach people that, that completely misses the point. But was it a real serpent, right. though? What was that? Was it a real serpent? I, I, my view is that this is a supernatural being who either comes as a serpent or in the form or the appearance of, of some serpentine thing. Okay. So Eve, Eve saw a serpent though. It, it, it right. wasn't just, whatever, that's not a mistranslation. There's two ways to, you're right. Whatever, there's two ways to look at this. If it's a serpent, well, of course you would have seen serpents before because you're in a garden. Okay. You know, a tropical sure. place. Yeah. No brainer. If, though, this is a supernatural being that just, you know, has this appearance or takes this appearance, it is possible that Eve had seen these guys before, too, because the serpent image and the cherub image, the serpent and the seraph are the same imagery. Okay, seraphim in, in Isaiah 6, this is, this is from Egyptian iconography. Seraphim were guardians of sacred space. And so were cherubim. Cherubim is just an Akkadian term. It's from Mesopotamia instead of Egypt. In, but in, in Ezekiel, doesn't he see both cherubs and seraphs? No, is he? Isaiah, he sees seraphs. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is where you get the seraphs, and Ezekiel is where you get the cherub, the cherubim. Okay. So, but, those, but those didn't look like serpents. Well, it, it depends on the iconography. Huh. On the iconography. Now, I, I, I tend to think that the serpentine imagery obviously is in play here. But my point is that if you if you read this and you don't think that this is a like a literal snake, the imagery that's used by the writer conveys certain things. Okay, whatever this being is, apparently they have close proximity to God because this is the kind of imagery you would use of a guardian of sacred space. 
to protect the deity from defilement. This is just, again, standard ancient Near Eastern ways of thinking. So that, I think that's important because I, I do associate Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I think they do contribute something to our understanding of Genesis 3, even, those, even though those two passages are not about, that's a key word, neither of those passages is about what happens in the Garden of Eden. Rather, they are diatribes against foreign kings and to sort of portray the foreign king as being incredibly arrogant. What's used is the story of a supernatural rebellion in the throne room of God, in the divine council. And so on the, on the, in the Mesopotamian side, Ezekiel's writing to a Mesopotamian, a Babylonian audience. So in chapter 28, he does refer to Eden. He calls both the garden and the mountain of God. Both are significant. And I discussed this in Unseen Realm. Those are the two terms that would be used for the divine abode. Gardens because it's paradise. Of course, the gods live in paradise. Mountains because they're remote. They, you know, people are icky. We don't want people around us. You know, so like, again, like a divine penthouse. Yes, yes. Yeah. These are the metaphors. So when you're writing to a Babylonian audience, you use the, the cherubim metaphor, okay? When you're writing with an Egyptian context, and believe it or not, Isaiah 6 has plenty of e Egyptian stuff in it because of Ahaz, Hezekiah, and, and Uzziah. Okay, they were all in league with the Egyptians. We actually mm. have, archaeologists have actually found like the seal of Hezekiah with a scarab beetle. Like, no you know, kidding, really? Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they, were, they were tight with the Egyptians thinking they're going to partner with them to protect them against the Assyrians. And well, Israel was always doing that, and, and, and yeah, Egypt yeah. like a splintering reed that you lean up against and so, you can't I mean, trust and the logic is why would an israelite king use use egyptian imagery well i think that i think it's kind of obvious when you when you saw the king's procession or you saw a decoration on the palace or whatever you knew he was in league with pharaoh pharaoh was his buddy you don't mess with him okay then you got to mess with egypt all right oh. so, so there, there's a certain logic to this but but back to the supernatural rebellion I think you've got three chapters here that all either tell or draw on the tale of a rebellion mm -hmm. in God's own house by one of his supernatural agents, I mean, somebody that's close to him. And that's why you get the imagery that you get. You have, you have a betrayal, you know, actual betrayal that leads to, to human deception. And, yeah. and of course, you know, we know the rest of the story in Genesis three. You know, not we're getting getting ahead of ourselves here, probably. But so when Satan entered into Judas, and Judas, you know, this is of course later, mm -hmm. um, and and then Judas goes off to betray Jesus over to the authorities. Satan was just doing what he knew how to do. He had already betrayed God before, and now he's entering right. into Judas as and Judas, someone close to the Lord, someone who is, yeah. you know, they broke bread together, and now Judas is going to go do. What Satan had previously done uh, in Eden, yes. Yeah, and and Paul makes Paul makes sort of the broad comment about Satan being a, a an angel of light, you know, you know, who can transform himself and, and right. like so. So yeah, these are all. None of this is new. <laughs> right. <laughs> none right. of this later stuff is, is new. You know that that Satan, or again, that the being that get, that gets called Satan. You know, because right away, if if you have a let's say we had somebody who's in seminary or graduate school listening to your podcast, they're going to say, Heiser doesn't know that, that the word Satan, you know, is not used of the serpent in Genesis 3. Oh, pardon me, Heiser does know that. 
Okay. And that's true. You right. never have the serpent called Satan in the Old Testament. You also never have the serpent called lots of things that he gets called in Second Temple Jewish literature. Right. The theology of the divine rebellion in Eden does not depend or extend from one word. Okay, as time goes on, biblical writers and later writers start to develop vocabulary to sort of attach, labels to attach to this initial rebel. You know, one of them is Mastama. Another one is Belial, the worthless one. You know, Mastama is sort of a derivative of Satan. Satan means the adversary or the opposer, the challenger. You know, the you know some, some something like this, somebody who opposes the will of God. And so, at some point, you know, in the Second Temple period, the intertestamental period, somebody's thinking about what happened in Eden and said, you know, you know that serpent opposed God. He opposed God's plan. This would be a good thing to call him. Let's call him Hasatan. Just because they don't do that in the Hebrew Bible doesn't mean a thing. The shoe fits, so he gets to wear it. It doesn't matter when he's called that or who calls him first. Right. It's not a pecking order or a contest. You know, so you have the, the village atheists out there on the Internet. Oh, this is a huge contradiction. You know, no, it's not. It's just vocabulary. Get used to it. You know, <laughs> vocabulary doesn't all get used at the same period in any ancient literature. That's a great impression of an atheist, too. Thank you, you know, for that. Well, you know, I, I just I just. I just get annoyed with the stupidity of some of the arguments. I mean, there's there's a certain stream of of internet atheism that that uh, you know tries to take those cheap shots, and it's it's important for people to know how to respond to it. Well, you know, I mean, to be fair to atheists, I mean, the atheists that I have met, you know, some of them are thoughtful and and they don't want to believe in God because of things like evil. You know, sure. In other words, that, like that's a legitimate discussion to have. Yeah, and, and I, I didn't mean to throw all atheists under the right. bus there. If, I, if, like, you're, some. if you're pulling arguments like this, you are just underread. Yes. Okay? Mm -hmm. You're just not thinking well. And I'm sorry to maybe I'm the first person that would say that to you, but but you don't deserve to be lied to either. Amen. Right. Okay. You, you just don't. So just for the sake of time, because um, there there are a number of people commenting right now who are chomping at the bit, and I want to make sure we have time for these questions. But mm -hmm. can we move on, Mike, to the second rebellion? Yeah, we'll we'll do this. We'll do number two and three pretty quickly here, just okay. to give the overview. Cool. So, pardon the pun, but the fallout of the first rebellion, nice, is that humans are estranged from God. The family is broken up. God doesn't have what He wants. And now we have a death problem, because when you are removed from the presence of God, who is the source of all life, you know, eternal separation from God, this is death. And so the original rebel essentially is, you know, ranks the highest on the evil pecking order because of the effect of what he's done. Everything dies. Eden is no more. Everything dies. Everything will die. He owns every soul. He basically owns the planet because everything dies, okay, without, you know, God living, having living space on the earth. So humanities has a big problem. God doesn't destroy them, though. He decides to you know, redeem them, and life goes on outside of Eden. God is still relating to people. And then along comes, you know, the, the problem with the flood. So the, the second rebellion is Genesis 6, 1 through 4. 
really one through five. Five is verse five is very important. And for those of, of you who are, are listening or your audience, you probably know the Genesis six four stuff. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were you know beautiful, and they took them wives or women, you know, of, of all that they chose. And then you know verse four, you know they the Nephilim were upon the earth in those days when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, and you know you you have this this transgression of heaven and earth producing Nephilim and all this kind of stuff. Okay, that's the weird stuff. But have you ever asked yourself how the first four verses connect to verse five? Because verse five says, and God saw that the wickedness of man, Adam, humankind, was great upon the earth. Yeah. And that every thought of the imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Which is a terrifying thought. Right? <laughs> because... You know, how- how did we go from from supernatural beings transgressing heaven and earth to everybody on earth is just depraved? Like, well, like how, did we, how did we go from one to the other? Especially when you consider the fact um, people were living. Do, do you believe that the the timelines of uh, the the antediluvian kings and patriarchs? Do you think that they lived 900 years, or, or do you think that that's figurative? My my personal view is I think that the numbers in in the Genesis genealogies, I think there's a numerical cipher for them. And the reason I think I saw that, that is because the Sumerian king list, which parallels in some places very closely. Yeah, but it's but they're longer, aren't they about 10 times longer? They are, they are 10 times longer, but all of them have a mathematical cipher. Okay. But that has been cracked and discovered. Now nobody's nobody's successfully done that for Genesis yet. Okay. There have been there are some that get tantalizingly close as to what you know this would be and, and what it would mean you know in, interpretively, but again that that's my view. I I just suspect that the same thing's going on that that it, it just hasn't been resolved yet. But but anyway. could it be both? Oh, well, it it could be both. Sure. I mean, they they could have a you know unusually long lifespans. But if you have a mathematical cipher, then the then the only issue is you know what does it equate to? Sure. You know, like like on the other side as well. Okay, so, so and, and it would depend. What's what going on? Is. What's going so, on here before the flood? On with Genesis six again. You know, we have the story about the sons of God and the Nephilim, and then verse five commentary on 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 people and their depravity. So you know, you got to wonder how do you get from one to the other? And this is an old question. Hold that in your mind because when you go to the New Testament, Peter in Second Peter two talks about the angels plural that sinned at the time of the flood. Now, let's just stop there. What other candidate could there be for angels, plural, sinning at the time of the flood than Genesis 6, 1 through 4? And the reason I bring this up is, is Christians have gone through great lengths, and since the 4th century AD, they have denied almost en masse that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are supernatural beings because they're, you know, well, how does that work? Like, how does a supernatural being, you know, have sex with a human woman? And, you know, how? Do, okay, the short answer is, I don't know how that works. Just like I don't know how the Trinity works, just how I don't know how the, the incarnation works or the resurrection or the hypostatic union, or try this one on for size, the concept of salvation. Right. Okay, none of these things conform to science. Sure. And a materialistic answer. None of them. Zero. But what we have is we have you know believers who want to be selectively supernatural. 
well, it's more respectable to believe in, in the incarnation, the resurrection, than this Genesis 6 stuff. That's mythology. Well, why? Right. They come from the same source. But again, let's set that aside. You have Peter referring to angels that sin, and, and some would say, well, that, that's the fall of the third of the angels with Satan, right? Wrong, because there's no verse that says that, not only in Genesis, but anywhere else. There is no other candidate. Okay, Peter tells you in that in 2 Peter 2 that he considers the sons of God of Genesis 6 to be supernatural beings, point blank. So if you're going to reject that, to me, that's an issue of biblical authority for you. You know, just now, Peter goes on and he, he has them in chains of gloomy darkness. You don't read that in Genesis 6, do you? Or anywhere else, except for Jude, you know, Peter's buddy. Okay. Where does, where does he get that? Well, I'll tell you where he gets it. He gets it from Second Temple Jewish literature, like the Book of Enoch, or like the Genesis Apocryphon, or you know, some Dead Sea Scroll, or something like Because they're talking about Genesis 6 all the time in these texts and they and they always take it supernaturally you know there's another thing in second peter 2 he has them you know in chains of gloomy darkness and he has them sent to hell most translations in english have the verb there is tartarao it means sent to tartarus and that's actually important because that's where the greek story of the titans who were hello supernatural beings okay they were sent to tartarus for rebellion I mean, why why got all these things going on that point to the supernatural thing and, and you say well that's 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 not biblical material you're, you're right. correct it, you're correct it's not it's not but but you might want to sit down for this or if you're driving pull you know pull over on the on the on the shoulder so you don't crash yeah but biblical writers read books <laughs> they, they really did they knew this material and in this case it helped inform what they were, were producing in their own content now here's the one more thought about Enoch and the Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff like this. And again, this yeah. is not an exaggeration. You know, truth be told, I worked for Logos Bible Software for 14 years. I got all their books for free. I have a library of 20,000 you know, 20, volumes, thousands of commentaries in digital form. You know, why am I telling you that? Because in 2010, somebody published an article in the Journal for the Study of the Pseudepigrapha, which is part of this intertestamental stuff. And, and, and the article was called On the Origin of the Watchers. The Watchers are Enoch's version of the sons of God of Genesis 6. That's his term for them. Okay? Enoch calls them the Watchers. Genesis calls them the sons of God. Same entities. Same yeah. guy. Okay? And so the guy who wrote this article is an Assyriologist. He specializes in cuneiform literature, Mesopotamian, Babylonian stuff, Sumerian. And he said, hmm. You know, we all know that, you know, if we've known since the late 1800s that there are flood stories in, in Mesopotamian tablets, you know, like, like everybody knows this. You, you even get taught this in high school, okay? So we all know this, but I wonder, has anybody ever, like, collected all the data from the, the, those flood stories that corresponds specifically to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and then see if that can explain the whole Watcher terminology? And he published it in 2010. Turns out there is. And in fact, there's a story in Mesopotamia, the Apkalu story, that point for point in every respect matches Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and importantly, including the being imprisoned and all that stuff. It shows you what the original Mesopotamian context was for Genesis 6, 1 through 5. 
who, you know, the writer there is shooting at Babylonian theology, the Babylonian Mesopotamian version of events before the flood, because the Apkalu were wonderful in Babylonian theology. They're the good guys. They're trying to preserve humanity. But the bigger gods want humanity destroyed in the flood. That's terrible. We need to preserve the knowledge we've given to humans because we've invested a lot of time in these people. You know, and so they're, they're the heroes of the story. Even right. though Marduk sentences them to prison, you know, in, in the abyss, in chains of gloomy dark, the whole thing, okay? Mm. The giants, every element is there. Now, why do I mention that and, and the Logos commentaries in the same, you know, same breath? Because when that article came out, I was curious. Is there any commentator that's known in the evangelical world who dealt with the Apkalu story? So I did a little search. I found two commentaries in existence that mention the word Apkalu. They don't discuss the data because it hadn't been collected and published until 2010, okay? But at least they were aware of the story and that's it. Just, just the word, no comment, no nothing. Outside of software, I have found one journal article, actually it's an essay in, in, a, in a collection of essays by Ann Kilmer, and then a book by Helgo Kronvig on this that get into detail about the Apkalu story. What that, and they were both, again, pre-2010. So what this means for, for my listening audience you know, out there who, who is wondering why is Mike doing all this, is that if you have a commentary on Genesis that doesn't get into the Apkalu stuff, and say, look, we have an exact parallel in Mesopotamian stuff. Like everything else in Genesis 1 to, 11, 1 to 11 is Mesopotamian. The biblical writers are writing in response to Babylonian theology from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11. Creation to Babel, Babylon, hello, okay? Like the rest of it, this is shooting at Mesopotamian theology too. And if your commentary doesn't get into this material, it is by definition obsolete, okay? It is not interacting with the data. Wow. By definition. So that's my challenge. You know, you know, I know the Sethite view has been around since the days of Augustine. For the idea that the sons of God sons were of God really are, the godly line yeah. of Seth. And that has yeah. its own problems. Oh, so so the saved people are men. Yeah. And well, it's not even it, you women. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's not it's not stated at all. It, it's right. and it's, it's not it, in there. It never actually says that, you know. Right. So that view, and, and there are reasons why why Augustine drifted off into that view, and, and because of his stature, it becomes the, the view of the church. Okay, right. I, you know, I get it. But the, the, again, it has its own internal problems. But the bigger problem is I don't want to hear you talk about interpreting the Bible in context again. Okay, if you're going to do that, do it in Genesis 6, 1 through 5. And, and the real issue is not the scary Nephilim. I mean, they're important, you know, in other passages and all that. The real issue is that is is the knowledge that was taught in the Apkalu story, the knowledge that was preserved by the Apkalu before the flood, and then after the flood, the Apkalu are, are semi-divine and human combined, and they happen to be giants. And but but the knowledge is held intact, and it it's what makes Babylon great. Okay, to the biblical writer, all that stuff, and it's listed. You know, and you actually get get another form of the list in Enoch idolatry, arts of seduction, weapons of warfare. I mean, it, basically the whole list is the reasons why humanity after the flood is so good at destroying itself mm -hmm. and how it goes further away from the true God. Yeah. That is why it's there. And that's why Genesis 6, 1 through 4 connects to verse 5. Okay. 
It, okay. Humans become corrupted and wicked and evil on a, on a grand scale because of what these guys taught. Why do we think Peter and Jude, when they talk about false teachers? Yeah. What's their analogy? The angels that sin. Okay. You know, I mean, they know the backstory. Right. Enoch knows that even Enoch even mentions Gilgamesh by name, who was Lord of the Apkali. Okay. Wait, wait, say, oh, Enoch, Enoch mentions Gilgamesh? Well, I mean, uh, the Book of the Giants, which is Enochian, but it's not part of the Book of Enoch. The Book of Gee. the Giants mentions Gilgamesh and, and, uh, and actually, I'm trying to remember that Ohia is the other giant name. But is, Gilgamesh specifically is Lord of the Apkalu in Mesopotamian literature. Do you, do you think, quick sidebar, do you think Gilgamesh is the same as Nimrod in, in scripture? You know, I, I, right now I don't. I say right now I don't because it, that is such a gnarly topic that five years from now I might. I mean, <laughs> a mighty hunter before the Lord, he yeah. goes to hunt Humbaba. No, I know, I know. There's there's a lot there. There's a lot there. But Eric uh, and Uruk. Yeah. Okay. 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 I, I'll, I'll say this. Okay, that it, it's a possible trajectory. Okay. Because okay. I'm already on that trajectory, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not committed yet. I'm just, okay. I'm not I'll, committed yet. I'll, I'll look forward. To, I'll talk to you again about it in five years. We'll see if. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. But I mean, so, the, the second rebellion is really the about the acceleration of human depravity, and the third rebellion is when you get to Babel. So, yes. me as a doctoral student, you know, okay, I knew I had heard about the fall. Genesis six, I had been taught not to see anything there. Move along, citizen. There's nothing supernatural. Yeah, going yeah nothing on. to see here. Right. Right. And, and the third one, the rebellion at Babel, if you read Genesis 11, 1 through 9, the story of Babel, you're never going to find any angels or demons in it. Where are the bad guys, Mike? Where are the supernatural beings? Well, you're right. They're not there. But let's go over to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. Okay. The reason I hadn't seen this is because I'm using translations of the Bible that do not incorporate the Dead Sea Scrolls. But to be honest and less charitable toward myself, I wasn't really thinking about it either. Because when you go to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9, it says, when the Most High, you know who that is, that's not hard. When the Most High divided up the nations and set their boundaries, okay? Well, we know when that happened, that's Babel, because we have the table of nations that we're supposed to read in Genesis 10, along with the Genesis 11 story. Everybody knows this. Nobody fights about it. When the Most High divided the nations and sets their borders, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel... Verse 9 is Yahweh's portion. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Now, what's going on here? Like sons of God, like again, divine beings. And you get to verse 43 and the gods are mentioned again and God's taking revenge on them. And, you know, you find out why if you, if you know the Babel thing. But the short version of what's going on here is that we're after the flood now. God has preserved humanity through the flood. He's given Noah and his sons he repeats the Edenic covenant. We're going to kickstart this plan again. God is not giving up on having a human family. There is no plan B. So here we go again. And God wants them to do what he told Adam and Eve to do. Be fruitful and multiply and disperse. Okay. Let's try it again. And it actually says in Genesis 11 that the people there say, let's build a tower so we don't have to do what God told us to do. You know, I mean, lest we be dispersed. You know, right. that, that's going to work out really well. I mean, that's yeah. going to work out really well. Yeah. And so God has had it. God has had it at Babel. It's like, okay, this is, this is why I refer to Babel as the Romans one event of the Old Testament. This is when God gives humanity up to what they want. We'll see how that works. 
God decides to punish the nations. How? Well, he confuses their languages. They get divided and all that stuff. But he assigns them, he allots them to other members of the heavenly host, other sons of God, other divine beings. You don't want me to be your God? Okay, we'll give you a placeholder here. Well, you know, we'll see how that works. Now, my view is that God is still interested in humanity. He doesn't want these people abused by whatever member of the heavenly host now is governing whatever nation. Why? Because they're and God turns around and just divorced. I mean, mass is gone. God isn't in fellowship with any human being anymore. And then he turns around and says, I'm going to pick one guy from Ur of the Chaldeans. His name's Abraham, and his wife can't have kids, so she's perfect. Because I'm going to raise up a new humanity to be my family. I am not giving up on the original plan. I'm putting you people on the shelf. God does. He calls Abraham. When he makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, now look, it's going to be through you and your seed. And don't bicker with me about the seed. You're going to be able to have a kid. Just hang on. Okay. It's going to be through you and your seed that all of these other nations that I've just divorced are ultimately going to be blessed. So God wants them ruled well. He wants them ruled according to his, his good character. They're still his imagers. He still has a plan for them. But in Psalm 82, we find out really what happened. Now, we're not told when the sons of God begin to abuse their people and their populations and sow chaos among the nations and turn their hearts to worshiping them instead of the true God. And, and you know, they even, they even get Israelites to worship them. In Deuteronomy 32, again, that continues. In verse 17, we see that. We're not told when, but in Psalm 82, we're told that God is angry. These are the, the supernatural beings. These are the fallen angels, if you want to call them that. The ones that have been given geographical dominion by the Most High, and they corrupt their charge. They at least fail, because if you read Psalm 82, these nations are in chaos. Okay, help me understand there are something here. Left and right. I mean, there's just injustice everywhere. How, how does God that work, angry. What was that? Well, how, how does that work? So... You, you've got God apportioning off the nations to mm -hmm. the 70 uh, lowercase g gods, meaning, uh, and I have to say lowercase g because yeah, someone's they are lowercase g. They are, they are not at the same ontological level as Correct. the triune God of the Bible. Right. So, so you've got, so you've got, um, you've got this apportioning happening and they're supposed to govern the nations. Mm -hmm. Help me understand, how does that work? Because it's not as if they were physically manifest, sitting in some temple or some throne room somewhere, you know, one in Rome, one in Babylon, uh, one in Nineveh. So how were they governing? How are they supposed to govern? Um, let's say they never rebelled. Let's say they never fell. How would that governing take place? Are they whispering spiritually in the ear of the king? or I, I, think, I think Daniel 10 is a useful place to go here. And again, and again, this is for your audience. Have you ever asked yourself this simple question? And again, I'm in the same bucket. I didn't ask myself this question. I, I was a doctoral student and I never asked it. Daniel 10, we're all familiar about how there's, there's supernatural princes over nations, Prince of Persia, Prince of Greece, Michael is the Prince of Israel, and they duke it out, you know, all this kind of stuff. Why don't we ask where Daniel got his theology? I'll tell you where he gets his theology. He gets it from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. That's where he gets it. He gets it from Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, where the, the gods, the host of heaven, are allotted 
to these nations. That's the parallel to Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. In Deuteronomy 17, they're called Elohim. Okay, in Deuteronomy 29, he uses the allotment language again. All right, this is where Daniel gets his theology. And so we know, you know, historically and from the Bible you know, itself, that Babylon, you know, Persia and Greece, they have kings, they have human kings. But we also know that there's a supernatural intelligence behind them. Okay, there's a symbiotic thing going on here. And so what I think, again, I can only speak as if, if I were a supernatural cosmic power of darkness. Okay, here, here's what I would do. You don't need to turn people into flesh puppets. Possession is a loser's game. Demons in the, in the biblical supernatural worldview are actually mm -hmm. low level. They can only affect individuals. Yeah. These guys are well beyond that. What I would do is I'm looking for people who have power over other people. But didn't Satan himself enter into Judas? So he's clearly, if he's the chief of every all these demons, he's clearly not above possession in some sense. He's not above it. He's not above it. Okay. But 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 these guys, these lowercase G gods, they're they're not going to that. They're not possessing Nebuchadnezzar or or demonizing him. They're it's it's far more useful if if you have come by whatever path to hate God's desire to have a human family mm -hmm. and to hate the objects of that goal, humans who, who want to follow the true God. If you by, by definition want to oppose and destroy that, you're going to work smart, not hard. Subtly. And the way to work smart is to get people to manipulate people by whatever means either in something as simple as their worldview or their religion, their allegiance to some deity. And you can show up once or twice and convince people that, you know, okay, there's a real deity here and I'm on your side and make sure you kill enough, you know, offerings to me and then I'll, you know, I'll make it rain or whatever it is. Okay. The way you do this is you get the power brokers, the people who have authority and power of life and death in the ancient world over the masses. And you tell them who they're going to worship. At, on, on pain of death. You tell them what they're going to think on pain of death. This is easy. Okay, if, if you get the, the intellectual apparatus, and, and frankly, I mean, I don't want to be too harsh in my analogy here, but I don't think things have changed very often or, or very much. You know, it, it's like if, if you control what people think, what they digest intellectually, what how they're supposed to think about what they digest, you know, yeah. if you if you gratify them in, in some way, you know, you, you get right. You get them to think that that oh, life's great if I if I think this way and not that way. This is easy. But but how is that influencing? Because I, I can totally see what you're saying, and, and you said that things don't change much. Education, uh, politics, media, entertainment. I mean, the same stuff's going on today. My question is, is are 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 these entities? Are they? You know, are they manipulating uh, circumstances? Are they implanting? Um, you talk a little bit about influencing dreams and say it, it doesn't really happen in scripture. But how are they putting these thoughts in people's head? How are they saying, hey, King so-and-so, tell everyone to worship Marduk? I think they do, they do have the ability to intersect with people just in, their, in, in the course of a person's life. And that event will have a great influence on how that person thinks. So, again, okay. if I were a supernatural cosmic being, even if I never say anything to a person, I'm going to show up 
in response to something maybe they solicit, okay. or I'm going to show up in a place or in a way that gets them to think a certain thing. Okay, and, so and my and my and my work here again, you know, it, it's mission accomplished because what I want is I want to capture your thinking. I want because you as you think, you will behave. You will do things according to what you believe. Right. So again, if if you can do that. In in a context now, you know we don't live under dictatorships and stuff like that. So, it, you know maybe there's more work involved. But I, you know, with the mass media, maybe not. You know, it, it, I, I could I could be persuaded either way there okay. on that one. But but what you want is you want to steer people away from the true God, a relationship with the true God, and you want people to live in chaos. You want people right. to not experience what life would be like. If they were, if they had the, the true God on their side, if, if they were a member of His family, sure. you want all of that, okay? And because when and when people are in crisis and when they're in chaos and when they're traumatized, a lot of them are, are just looking to get through any, any given day. They don't have time to think lofty thoughts about what's going on to them theologically. Right. I mean, they're not going to be thinking about that. They're going to be thinking about, can I pay the bills? Do I, you know? You know, is is this boyfriend that I have a restraining order going to come and beat me or kill me? I mean, they're in crisis. Yeah, they're right? trying to get by. The, the more you keep people in crisis, the less apt they are to think about the, the spiritual ramifications of, of where they are in life. And this is why God needs, okay, in one sense, he doesn't need anything because God could just snap his fingers and everything. Yeah, you, you triggered me when you said God needs, but, but I understand where you're going. But God, God has chosen to work his plan through human agency. And so God, it's, this is where Christians, if they play, even if they don't even know it half the time, they play a positive role in somebody's life. It can be life diverting, life changing. And if you don't want to obey that, God's going to God's going to steer somebody else's life circumstances to put them in contact with that person that you were supposed to talk to. I mean, God is perfectly capable of doing that. But God has committed himself, okay, to not just wiping the chessboard clear and calling it good. Oh, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. You know, and the rest of the heavenly hosts, well, if you don't you know, if you think I'm cheating, I'm going to destroy you too. Well, uh, you know, that that is a, that is a decision that would be a low integrity being, <laughs> okay? and, and it's going to be contrary to God's nature. So God has committed Himself to work with free will agents, and He's not going to change the rules. He ain't going to cheat. He yeah. is perfectly capable to get people, you know, members of the heavenly host who are loyal to Him, to maybe show up in a person's life at a side of the road, and it's a life changing experience. Or another Christian, another person, even people who aren't Christians, you know, who, you know, God can put them in a specific time and place. And if they do something, you know, to, to, to help that person, it could direct them in the way God wants their life directed. I mean, this is, if, if you have this view of the world, which the biblical writers do, then everything you do matters. Mm -hmm. Everything you do matters. You're not waiting for God to be in the spectacular. Oh, God's off today. It's five o'clock and I haven't seen a miracle. You know, right. no, you, God is not just in the spectacular. If anything, the unseen hand is dominant, even in scripture, because we, we don't have people's lives, every event of their lives. We have little snippets of their life. Well, 
Yeah, Mike, I, I got to tell you, you're you're speaking to a rock-ribbed Calvinist. So everything you're talking about in terms of God being able to direct events and uh, and and work things out according to His plan, even using yeah. moral agents freely acting according to their their choices, uh, I'm I'm. See, I, I tend in, in, in the Calvinist issue, I I back end sovereignty. I see that. I see that. I yeah. In other words, God is is perfectly capable. Uh, you know, he doesn't need to predestine everything. You know, it, I use the chess analogy. What's more impressive? You know, God, you know, sits down with somebody to play a game of chess, and he looks at that person and says, you're going to lose because mm -hmm. I predestined all your moves. So let's yeah. begin, okay? How, or, or God sitting down with that person and saying, you can move anywhere you want. I'm still going to win. Yeah. I'm that good. Uh -huh. Okay, I, 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 I'm way ahead of you, even though yeah. you don't believe I'm ahead of you. So, you know, one is, is predestination up front. The other one is trusting God's ability to use free will agents to steer things to the end which he wants. But, but isn't that what God's doing, you know, um, in, in the, the crucifixion of Jesus? I think so. Pilate, Herod, they were all freely acting. And yeah. yet it turns out, as Peter tells the, the crowd afterwards, yeah, or actually he's praying to the Lord. He says, you know, these these men they conspired together to do everything which you had determined in advance they would do and it's like you know you ask Pilate, Pilate, didn't you choose to wash your hands didn't you know herod didn't you choose to send him back to Pilate? yeah i chose and god's going yeah you chose but i i'm a little smarter than you it, it really you it, for, it really, you know, for good to me what what opened the door to this and pushed me toward the back end you know view is first samuel 23 which sounds really weird <laughs> first samuel 23 i'm going to look at 23 this is david at kyla yeah. i discussed this in unseen realm so the city of kyla you know is, is a walled city mm -hmm. and david is off fighting you know philistines yeah i just and, read this with my kids yeah right he, he saves he saves you know the, the city of kyla from the philistines and then he goes for some r and r in the city okay People are feeling good about him because you just kicked the Philistines' butts, you know, and we're, we're safe now. Well, somehow Saul hears that David is in Kyla, and he thinks, David, you, you moron. Okay, Kyla has walls. Uh -huh. You shouldn't be there. Because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take my men and come down to the city of Kyla and lay siege to it, you know, surrounded. It's siege warfare. And you can't get out. I'm finally going to get you. Right. And so David hears that, that Saul has heard, and he, you know, he's mustering people. You know, we don't know how each of them hear, but, but that's the story. That's they do. And so David says, hmm, bring the ephod here. I got I to gotta talk to God. <laughs> you know, so they bring the yeah. ephod, you know, the high priest thing. And, and David asks him two questions. He says, will Saul come down? to Kyla to get me. And God says, yep. And so his second question is, will the men of Kyla hand me over? Because I've just saved their butts, you know, like will, will the men of Kyla now turn me over to Saul? And God says, you betcha. So what does right. David do? He leaves. It's out of time. Yeah. Right, he gets out of yeah. time. Okay, but do we do do we miss the theology? I did for years. That 
Uh, Mike, you're breaking up a little bit. Could you God repeat that? Two, yes. God foreknew two things that never actually happened. Right. That tells you that foreknowledge does not necessitate, that's the key word, predestination. Yes, but David did have to survive, though. Even the Reformed creeds, God knows all things real and possible. Well, the possible has to remain possible or else everything would be actual, which is absurd. So God's foreknowledge of the possible doesn't necessitate the possible being actual. Right. I mean, this is standard, you know, Reformed theology. But, but the thing is, I had never, and I, you know, I, I had a, a mishmash. You know, there, I had Calvinistic teachers and I had non-Calvinistic teachers. And Calvinism was attractive in, in, in several respects. But when I ran into that, it's like, okay, it's very obvious that foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. The sub-question, of course, is the things that do happen, did God predestinate those? Right. And I think the biblical answer is maybe. He can if he wants, but does he have to? Yeah. I. And again, that, that, that's what sort of led me down, down this trail because I think 1 Samuel 23, and it's not the only example, but, but to me, it, it's so obvious there. And then, and then I thought about the Reformed Creed, and I thought, why didn't I see that? And, and it's because I had had the creed sort of defined for me in a certain way without ever really thinking about, you know, they did leave room here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually did. That's that's where you get into the distinction between like a hard determinism and a compatibilism yeah. or, or you know, God's knowledge of counterfactuals, all the things that could happen but don't. And when I um, – so it's funny you mentioned that passage. I just read that with my kids. We're working our way through um, – we started in Joshua, and we've been working our way through, and now we're in 1 Samuel 23. You're a brave man. Well, well I noticed I started after the Pentateuch, okay? So, so I didn't have to go through numbers with them or, or Deuteronomy. But I, my wife and I were talking. We're like, which books are most like the Narnia or the Lord of the Rings of the Bible? And that's you – know, so, so we're like – so once we get out of like, you know, second Kings or something, maybe we'll move on to another part. But um, nine chapters of genealogy. Let's go for it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, you know, but but the genealogy is relevant even here because we know that the Messiah has to come through David. And so whatever happens in the situation at Kyla, David has to survive. If David gets killed, and so my my uh my well, eight does he? Does David already have children? At this point, he, well, he doesn't have Solomon and, and the Solomon, Messiah. But did, did God commit himself to Solomon in 2 Samuel 7, or did he commit himself to David's line? Yeah, I I, I hear that. I, I happen to think that, um, you know, uh, Jesus, um, Jesus, the man, you know, Yeshua, the Jewish man, he had a particular genetic mix that made him, you know, who he is as a man. And so it's kind of like, you know, if, if your great great grandparents never got together, if he comes through a, a son of David that isn't Solomon, he's still the son of David, though. Uh, yeah, I, I hear that, and I know I he, he could have. I just I'm thinking, you know, if if Mike Heiser's great grandparents never got together because you know your great grandpa died in in childbirth or something like that, you know, you wouldn't be here, or, or at the very least, you'd be somebody else. And how does that work metaphysically? Yeah, I, well, I I think if 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 God still wanted me to to be the poster child for <laughs> for saying controversial things that really shouldn't be controversial. 
I'd have still got poked in the eye. <laughs> Whoever you, you'd be some, you'd be in uh, Russia doing this. Right. Okay, so, um, um, so lots and lots and lots. To, sorry, go on. What'd you say? Scotland, you know, someplace I want to visit. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, so so man, I've got I've got a ton of questions here, but but we've got we've had people watching who've been asking questions. Can we take a few of these questions, and maybe sure. I'll intersperse on my own sure. as well. Yeah. Okay. We can take 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. All right. So, so to everyone who's watching live, sorry, if you're, if you're listening to this later or watching this later on YouTube or Facebook, the, the comments are obviously closed, but um, if you're watching live, it's not too late. Throw in a couple of questions right now in the comment section. And uh, also if you're watching in a different group, like a different Facebook group, I won't be able to see your questions. You have to answer yet. Sorry. You have to ask your questions on the Think Institute page on Facebook. So, um, and, and there's, um, is that Norman? That's Norman. Yeah. Norman. He, he heard somebody come in. I, maybe I should go get him. Living, living up to his, uh, living up to his name there. Okay. So if you're, if you're watching this and something has, has sparked your interest, um, piqued your interest here and you're like, man, I've always wanted to ask Mike Heiser this, Leave the question, and this is your chance to get that question in. We've got 10 minutes. We're already over schedule, so we're going to try to buzz through these. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you, if at all yeah. possible. I will, I will give you simplistic, probably flawed answers because they're fast. That's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and and like I, I alluded to earlier, maybe at some point uh, we could have you come back onto the show and uh, maybe just do a Q&A. Would you be up for that sometime? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Um, all right. So here we go. Uh, just a quick shout out here. Christian Shelton, who, by the way, he's been recommending your stuff to me for a long time. He says, hi, Dr. Heiser. I'm a reader. I really appreciate your work teaching this hard, weird stuff in the Bible. So yeah, there you go. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Donna Flentke mentions, uh, okay, there's a parallel oh, yeah. to Joe. Yeah, the, I didn't get to say that inflammatory thing. You know, the, the, the Satan of Job 1 and 2 is not the devil. Okay, so there you go. It's a simplistic answer if you want to follow up on well, that. The, the short, and I developed this in, in both Unseen Realm, and I, I think I do it a little bit in, in the Demons book as well. Yeah, you do. In, in uh, Let's use English first. English does not tolerate a definite article, the word the, in front of a proper personal name. I'm not the Mike. Right. Okay, that just sounds ridiculous. Oh, sorry, really quick. Let me just, for those who are listening just on audio, I'm just going to read Donna's comment so then, so sorry. that people know what you're responding to. So it says, the parallel with Job as well. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. That's Job 1.6. So now, please. You have a few other places in Job 1, Job 2, you know, you, uh, Zeph, we might as well throw Zechariah 3 in here. There's the capital S Satan there. The, the problem is, you know, when I say that this, this figure isn't the devil, is that Satan in these verses is not a proper personal name. We are led to think that because our English Bibles capitalize it as though it were. The problem is, is Hebrew is like English. In English, English does not tolerate a definite article, the word the, before a proper personal name. I'm not, you know, the Mike. My 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 son is not the Calvin. Okay, it just 
It sounds ridiculous. Hebrew Your son's is name is Kelvin? Yes. Brilliant. <laughs> we like the name. There was a guy in our church who was a professor named Calvin, and he was a Calvinist too. Okay. So, all right. Um, Hebrews works the same way. The definite article in Hebrew is ha, just one, you know, one syllable, and then the word. So if we have ha satan, that tells you that that is not a proper personal name. And every occurrence of Satan in Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3, every one, there are no exceptions, is Hasatan. So it's not like Greek in that regard, where Greek does like put the Greek, definite right, article. Greek tolerates that. Like, like okay. even Jesus will have a definite article at times. Jesus, yeah. So Hebrew is quite different. And so what that means is, like, in, in some of your study Bibles, they'll have a note, like, next to capital S, Satan. The publishers are, are honestly afraid of not capitalizing it because you know, creating Bibles and study Bibles is a huge investment. Nobody's going to buy it if they think you're, you know, you're taking Satan away or you don't believe in Satan or something like that, which has nothing to do with it, but that's the way it would be perceived. You know, I, I do believe that, you know, a supernatural rebel in Genesis three that becomes later known as Satan. That's a real guy. Okay. But in this case, what you actually have and study Bibles will note this. They'll put a footnote there that says something like the accuser the adversary. And that's actually the way it should be translated. What you have is you have a divine council meeting, whether this figure is part of the decision-making sons of God or not is, is actually grammatically indeterminate. He might be one of their number. He might just be joining the meeting. Who knows? Who cares? He but seems anyway, adversarial though, doesn't oh, he? Oh, oh he, he is. He is. I mean, initially he's doing his job because this, the, the, the job of this person, I actually did a whole episode on, yeah. on heavenly books in the Naked Bible podcast. It's actually part of what's going on in Job 1 and 2, okay. where God enlists members of the heavenly host to record and watch and observe what people are doing. Are those the watchers? Right. That, that's, that's one of the reasons why they get that term. Okay. But you know, they, and, and what happens on earth is recorded in books, all right? And the point of the metaphor is not that God is a bad memory and he needs, you know, he needs help to remember this stuff. The point of the metaphor is that nothing is overlooked. And so when you have judgment come, you know, the books are opened and, you know, with all this, all these motifs. Well, part of this is this guy. This guy is going, God asked him, hey, where have you been? And the Satan says, well, I've been running to and fro throughout the whole earth, you know, and, and you know. You can know from the follow-up question that he's been checking people out, like who's who's loyal to God and who's not. It's his job. And so God says, hey, have you checked out Job? You know, and somehow God already knows about Job. He doesn't really need the Satan, but again, that's his job. He's, he's part of the bureaucracy here. And Satan, you know, the Satan says, yeah, I know who that is. You know, you, you think he's wonderful, but if you took away all he had, and you persecuted him, he would curse you to your face. Now that is a line that's crossed because it puts two things on the table. It, it questions before the whole heavenly host, the whole divine assembly. It questions God's integrity. Is God telling us the truth about Job? And it questions God's omniscience. Does God really know? And so this is why God has to tell, you know, I mean, he, he could say, you know, I, I, I don't ever want to hear that again and destroy everybody. You know, he could destroy the Satan, but that leaves the questions on the table, doesn't mm -hmm. it? 
So the way this plays out, and of course, Job, poor Job has no knowledge of what's going on in the heavenlies here. But God says, okay, we're going to see who's right. Mm -hmm. We're going to see if I'm omniscient and if my integrity is intact. You can do anything you want to Job except kill him. Mm -hmm. Because I don't want you to come back here and say, oh, if I'd have just done this thing, you know, then Job would have relented and you, you right. made me take it light on it. No, do whatever you want except take his life, and we'll see who's correct. You know, so, so we, the, the, you know, the whole rest of the book is about Job wondering, why in the world am I suffering? Yeah. And that's, you know, the point for us, because, you know, sometimes, in the, and God never tells him. Even right. at the end, when God restores, God never tells him, you know, what, well, it was because this idiot, you know, back here in the Divine Council meeting, you know, had to be corrected. You know, he got uppity, and I had to slap him down, unfortunately, at your expense. He never tells him that. But somebody found out because it made it in. It's made it made its way into scripture. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know. Again, you know how this process worked, as far as you know, this these two chapters of content. You know how the prologue of, of Job you know got written. I mean, who knows? I mean, inspiration can be the product of, of research or again something that God reveals. You yes. know, I'm, I'm not concerned either way with it. Sure. Um, that, that's who we have in Job one and two. Okay. We have a, so we have a supernatural being that crosses a line and has to be disciplined in, in effect, but unfortunately at Job's expense. Yeah. Okay. So we've got two more questions I, I have to get to. Mm -hmm. um, the the first one is from Lindsay Parisi. I'm gonna I'm gonna just change this so that we can read read that a little better and still see our faces. Okay. Lindsay Parisi asks this. Can you ask Dr. Heiser how he thinks demons are working on the earth right now, how we should be vigilant, i.e. Hollywood, movies, books, media, etc. Also, what is his view of the end game of satanic ritual abuse? He has some episodes with survivors named Fern and Audrey. And before you answer that really quickly, I just want to give you, I'm going to tell you the, the other question to get to um, so that we don't run out of time. And that is... Um, uh, Christian Shelton has asked about um, when when the Christians came over from Europe, were the gods, I'm trying to distill his question, were the gods, lowercase g, I always have to say that because someone's going to tune in and they're going to hear me teaching polytheism, um, were the, the lowercase g gods still in effect here in North America over the Native American nations mm -hmm. prior to the Christians coming, or... And I guess I'll tack onto that. Was Jesus' well, it, resurrection did that do the end, do away with that? Well, I mean, it, it, there's, gosh, you know, how do you how do you unravel all that? Um, yes. So two two questions. Which one do you want to answer first? Well, let, let's go back to the the Fern and Audrey thing. Um, okay. I, I think I think the point of of genuine you know satanic you know and, and the, you know be remembering and sort of giving memories and whatnot, but regardless of, of what it is, the way it plays out in a person's life and, and the way, you know, that it affects the people around them. I think the, the end game really is not only just fear, I'll say fear, but also to make lies appear powerful and true. You know, Fern and Audrey, their, their approach to the people that they encounter is you could boil it down to we're, we're here to speak truth to lies. People, either through ritual abuse or, or just some sort of trauma that isn't quite at the level of ritual abuse, 
they begin to either believe things about themselves or in the most extreme cases, they're programmed to believe things about themselves and about God and about the world and stuff like this that are better their mind control. Yes. Yes. They're lies. And so this is how they, how and why they use theology specifically, you know, they, when we met a lot of what I do was really useful to them. Um, Specifically their strategy is to speak truth to lies. You have to, you know, love the person. They, they use the phrase "stay in love" the whole time, and realize, you know, when if, if there is a manifestation of, of some other otherworldly thing, it needs to know that you know what its destiny is, and you're not going to be thrown off track. Okay, you're not. You, you can do all the Hollywood stunts and the fearful stuff, but at the end of the day, you're toast, and I'm not. At the end of the day. This is where it leads. Right. If I'm going to see you done away with, and the reverse will not happen. Amen. So, I mean, I think the end game, again, really is, is fearfulness. It's trying to, to make these powers seem more powerful and undefeatable than they are. They're, they're not more powerful, and they have already been defeated. Their authority to do what they do has been stripped away. Their sentences have been handed down they've not been meted out yet especially when you get to the to the geopolitical you know entities you know that, that paul links to the fullness of the gentiles and the great commission and whatnot you know that they're, they're in it to distract the church from the gospel so that they can stay alive i mean that, that's the end game for for the powers of darkness and i get asked all the time do they think they can win well they know they can't beat god but if they can distract the church and prevent the great commission from happening Right. They're still here. So yeah. that's, that's like a winning situation. You know, you know, the, the two thumbs up for that strategy. You know, we get to stay alive, you know. So I, I think a lot of it is just magnification of evil mm-hmm. into okay. getting people to think that it is bigger and more powerful than it actually is. Man, that's that's Nothing great. can be done about it when there's there are things that can be done about it. Love it. A lot of it, you know, the, the weapons of our warfare are not our spiritual, not carnal. A lot of it is 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 the way people think and the way they process something happening to them or that has happened to them. And this is why it's crucial to speak truth to lies, because people will act in concert with what they believe, what they think, what's going through their head. And so they need to be, you know, that it's consistently referring Audrey go, you know, with, with the people they get. So the other question was about essentially, you know, the, since, since the nations of the world and the biblical world, you know, are limited to the table of nations, you know, mm-hmm. 70 is, is the, the number, according to the Masoretic text, the Septuagint is 72. It's the same source. It's the table of nations. You know, are there, are there the same sort of entities, you know, are, are, are countries that are not, in the table of nations like America or South America, or New Zealand or whatever. Are in they, the, they in the table fight? of nations are, are 70, are there 70 nations or 72 listed? Well, in, in the new Testament, you know, you, you like in Luke 10, when, mm-hmm. the, when the, the, the initial disciples get sent out 70 or 72 get sent yeah. out and you'll see, yeah. you'll see translations vary. And the reason the, the number is varied is one, one uh, text, that the writer was following, you know, follows the traditional Hebrew text of the mm-hmm. nations in Genesis 10. If you count them, there's 70. 
Yeah. Oh, the other, okay. one, the other one because the Septuagint translator separated a couple of the names. Oh. The number turns out to be seventy-two, but the source is the same. Okay. It just um, on which textual tradition you're referring to. Okay, so the 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 is is there a point at which so does that number seventy does that come from a verse that says seventy or does it just simply come from adding them all well, up and is there a, a variant that says seventy two? There's no verse that limits the number of the sons of God to 70. That's oh, okay. An, that's an assumption based on okay. the table of nations. Based on how you count them. Right. But in the New Testament, in Luke, there's that variant of 70 or 70. Yes. Okay. And, and you know, what Luke wants, wants his readers, you know, and, and in, in the in the real-time scene, the people, you know, who are hearing this, the, the whole point is to take their mind back to Babel. Right. Because in Luke 10, the message is, Look, the kingdom of God is, is is among you. The king is here. And I just want you to, I want everybody to be clear here who's watching that I'm not the Messiah just for Israel only. Mm -hmm. I'm the Messiah for the whole world. I want every blasted square inch of the place. Yeah. And I think that's actually, you know, the, the, the key, because even though the biblical writers don't know how big the world is, God does. And I think what we're told in the biblical story you know, it, it, it's basically designed, the third rebellion is designed to communicate a, a pretty simple idea. That God has a people, and if you're not in God's family, you're other. And the nations, you know, God has given his people a land in the Old Testament. It's Israel. This is how he's going to restart Eden. You know, the, the place where God lives with his people is going to be this one place on earth. And everywhere else is not. It's under dominion. Of another spiritual being because of humanity's rebellion. This is a this is a punishment that God has handed out. Now God has not handed out that punishment so that you all you know hopelessly die and you know all that kind of stuff. Because people from other nations could join Israel. We have examples of that in the Old Testament. We of course have examples in the New Testament because that that's the whole point that the seed the Messiah would come back and open the floodgates to all the nations. Yeah. And then you, then you aggressively go out and get them, okay? So I, I think when it comes to modern nations at the time, the, the, the teaching is the same because the Great Commission isn't restricted to the nations of Genesis you know, 10 either. Right. You, know, it, it, you go into all the world. All nations, yeah. You know, and, and then, you know Scripture has this has all-encompassing language in a few places that, that, again, informs us that the whole point here is that if you're not in God's family and you're not, you know, in, in God's house, so to speak, then you, you know, you're out of the family and you need to be in and you're under the dominion of something else that, that you really don't want to be under the dominion of. So, so when, come back home. So when Jesus conquered, when, when he put the ruling powers to shame mm -hmm. uh, through his death, burial and resurrection, when he was declared to be uh, the, the son Mm -hmm. And when when he was given all authority in heaven and on earth, and the, the ascension is key to that. Yes, it goes back to the, the position of the right hand of the Father. Yeah. Yes, and I had Patrick Schreiner on a week or two ago to talk about the ascension. He's got a great book, also through Lexham Press. Yeah, it's crucial. Yes. Um. So when that happened, here's 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 the question I'd I'd love if you could, uh, if if you can answer this, when that happened. Were all the gods, the lowercase g gods, dethroned at that point? In other words, were the ones that had been over, let's say, 
the people who eventually became the Native Americans, were they dethroned at that point and illegitimized immediately? Or does that happen in real time as the gospel is spread, the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has redeemed this world, that he has redeemed the people for himself, and that all who trust in him will be forgiven and saved? Um, did that happen in North America? Did that happen in Ireland before Patrick got there mm -hmm. so that the Druids were ruling or the spirits behind the Druids were ruling illegitimately? Yeah. Was the, did, they, did the Druids have a legitimate rule that the gospel that Patrick brought dethroned and delegitimized? I, I think, I think the, point, the point of Paul connecting the authority, the, 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 the position, of the rulers and the principalities and powers, you know, again, all this, the Pauline vocabulary, they're all, they're all words of geographical dominion, you know, which is very you know, obvious because he's the apostle of the Gentiles. What other words would you use? Right. So when, when Paul connects their stripping away, their demise, their nullification, you know, their, their defeat, when he connects that to the resurrection and the ascension, my take is that at that moment, their authority to rule people in those places, in every place, has been removed. Immediately. Immediately. Okay. Prior to evangelization. Now, yes. Their, okay. their, their authority has been removed. Now, that doesn't okay. mean they're going to just, well, I'm taking my ball and going home now. Right. Their power, they're still exercising some but level of power. Right. Their authority has been removed. Their ability to, to, to be who they are, supernatural beings, and you know, still function as a supernatural being and exert influence and whatnot, that's still there. You know, it, it's all part of the, you know, it's another thing that's part of the already, the not yet, that we see over and over and over and over again, you know, in, in scripture. And this is no different that, you know, Paul could go into a Gentile town. You know, have, have you ever heard me tell the story when I was on the pagan podcast? This is a good illustration. Okay. No. So I, I got an email. This is several years ago. It's called and, the Pagan Podcast. Yeah. Well, this this podcast was Voice of Olympus. Okay. So I get an email that says, "Hi, my name is Hercules, and I'm host of the Voice of Olympus. And I I just read your book. He read the little book Supernatural, which is a, like a distilled version of Unseen Realm. Do they do these people subscribe to the the Greek yeah. gods? Like they worship yeah. them? Yes, that's, that's why he was emailing me. He was saying, he said, I worship the gods of Greece and Rome. Okay. And I, I just read your little book, Supernatural, and I loved it. And I want to know, will you come on my podcast? Uh -huh. Signed, you know, Hercules. <laughs> did, did he think that he was somehow Hercules in the flesh, possessed by Hercules? I, I, I don't know. I think it was just a name. It was an honorific thing. You know, he, okay. he lives in PA, this okay. guy. So I said, yeah, oh, okay, this this would be interesting. Sure, you know, why not? So so I go on this guy's show and like the, the audio is terrible. You know, I mean you can you can catch it online, but the audio he just had real audio problems. Uh, but you could probably still give it a listen. But for the first five, six, ten minutes of the show, this guy is going through Greco-Roman texts that articulate the Deuteronomy 32 worldview just wonderfully. It was awesome. I'm, I'm like, I am, I, if, if nothing else good happens here, I'm so glad I went on this show because I'm learning all this stuff, you know? Wow. So I actually have one of them in the demons book. I have a long excerpt from Plato from the, the Critias. Yeah. It even uses allotment language like, like the old Testament does. I couldn't believe that I'm reading Plato in my free time right now. Yeah. I couldn't believe I mean, that Plato said that. 
it's it's there and, and their idea is well we worship the gods we do because the bigger gods say we we have to or a lot of us to them and vice versa and all it's the same thing so this guy goes through this this whole thing and he says this is why i was so excited he, he said so it's really unusual that i can sit down <laughs> and have a conversation with someone and they know what I'm talking about, you know? Because, right. I mean, like, okay, I, I believe you, you know, who else do I know that worships the gods of Greece and Rome, you know? So so he goes, it was so exciting. And the Bible has this same worldview. So I have one question. He goes, if the Most High, the God of the Bible, set up this whole arrangement of, the, you know, people having to worship these gods because this is what he allotted to them, what does he want? But he didn't, God didn't set it up for them to worship those gods. No. Okay. No. So, you know, his thing was, was the allotment. That's what uh -huh. he was latching on to, you know. And, and he, he's like, you know, what, what does God want? And, and so I said, I, I'm, I'm so glad you asked. It's the perfect question. Yeah. Because on the one hand, yes, the Most High is the one who assigned them their authority mm -hmm. as a punishment. This isn't a good thing. It's a punishment. Right. Right. It's separating. Right. right. Humanity, right. you want you don't want me, me to be your God? There you go. Okay. Right. Out the door, you know, don't let the door hit, hit your butt on the way out. You know, that kind right. of thing. Right. So, you know, but but God in the back of his mind, as it were, knows I, I'm gonna get him back. I'm not giving up on this, you know. So so the most high gives them their authority. I and, and so I on this guy's podcast, I got to be Paul. I felt like I got to be Paul for a few minutes because I'm and, talking to a pagan. Okay? Acts 17. This is Acts 17. Right. right. I'm talking to a guy that this is this is their worldview. Okay. And he knows the material well. Yeah. And so I said, look, Paul would go into a pagan city and say and, and preach Jesus, and he'd say, Look, I know what you're thinking. You're you're afraid. You're 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 scared because you believe that if you turn your back on your gods and come over to to believe in jesus and worship jesus that you're you're just in big trouble the gods are going to get you you're going to be punished he goes but i got news for you the most touch the turn most high oh wait uh, uh, mike you're you're breaking up there. I'm sorry. You said, I've got news for you, and then you broke up. What, what did you say? I, mean, I, I imagine Paul saying, look, I've got news for you, and you think you're going to get punished by your gods if you turn your back on them. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember, it's the Most High that gave them their authority and their status. Mm -hmm. And the same Most High became a man, died on your behalf, rose from the dead, and now ascended back to heaven, stripping the authority away. So the same God who gave them the authority has now removed it. And it's okay for you to come back home. In fact, not only not, God will not only permit it, but he insists on it. He commands everyone to repent. That's what he wants. Yes. So, so here I am on this pagan show, <laughs> laying this out for a, like I said, I felt like Paul for a while. The best part of the show for me was during the commercial breaks, there was this, guy with his deep, dark, sinister voice that would come on and say, you're listening to the Pagan Podcast Network, all pagan, all the time. And I thought, not today. Not today. Amen. Okay, dude, not today. Okay. And again, I, like I said, it was just wonderful to sort of feel like Paul. I mean, 
what we're talking about on this podcast. Paul could have done this in his sleep. This is this is worldview, biblical worldview 101. It's it's pagan worldview 101. The difference is Jesus. How That's how man and and what an amazing uh <laughs> What an amazing thing God did by sending the Messiah at that time in history. So Jesus is the culmination of the Hebrew worldview because he's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. All the promises are yes in Christ. But he also came at a time when the pagan worldview was so dominant that Mm -hmm. people would have understood what it meant for him to go to the to, to the the. Garrisons and and to say if I'm lifted up I'm going to draw all men to myself for him to cast out demons and send them into a bunch of pigs they they would have understood this there, you know there are real there are real subtleties I'll, I'll give you you know I'll give you one example this is a podcast episode we just did you know Luke four Jesus first sermon okay he goes to the synagogue of Nazareth and you know nazareth you know it's a synagogue so you know most of the people there are obviously going to be jews i mean you might have one god fear in there whatever it is okay so he goes in there and and bible students know that jesus quotes isaiah 61 with a sprinkling of isaiah 58 but he only he only quotes isaiah 61 partially if you actually look at what he does and this is luke okay luke's writing to a gentile Jesus in Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 cuts out all the stuff that deals with the apocalyptic day of the Lord judgment of the nations. Okay, because he's like, "I'm, I'm not here to do that right now. I'm not interested in punishing the Gentile. So right away out of the gate, He's looping them in to the conversation. And, and the Jew thinks that, oh, the poor, the blind, you know, this, it's Isaiah. He's talking about us. And Jesus is like, yeah, but he's talking about them too. Right. Okay. And, and he goes on. I mean, Luke does this when, when Jesus cites different passages that somewhere in the, in the passage has the, the judgment of a Gentile nation. He leaves it out. Yeah. yeah it's that's and again, it, it's a very subtle way of telegraphing the point. I, yeah, I'm here. I'm here, but I'm not here just for the Jew. That's good. You know, okay. I mean, just things like that running through Scripture right under the surface all the time. Okay. That, that we miss. And and that's one of the reasons I really appreciated your book. Um, so as we begin to bring things to a close here, I, I want to just recommend to anyone who has not yet read Demons by Michael Heiser, go get it. Get it on Amazon. I don't. I don't remember how much it is, but it's worth it. Um, it's it's really incredible um, to see the biblical worldview being brought, dragged out of the first century AD and brought before our postmodern and modern post enlightenment eyes. Let me let me say one other thing for for people who would be new, you know, to me. The dirty little secret of unseen realm is the same as the dirty little secret of demons or anything else I write. Mike never had an original thought. Okay, that's the dirty little secret. What I do is I take peer-reviewed scholarship. Because again, what, what, what we're talking about here, this is like scholars talk this way about the Bible all the time because they're into the primary sources and the background of the worldview. They know all this stuff. It never. 
Right. It, it doesn't filter down to the church. Mm-hmm. So the people who really want to understand their Bible, they never get it. They never get to it. So what I try to do is I try to take peer-reviewed scholarship on, on the Bible and make it decipherable and digestible to just normal people. You know, yeah. that's the goal. It's a one-string banjo. I'm a one-trick pony. Okay, this is what we try to do. And, you know, Unseen Realm is the beginning point, and then Demons is a, is a drill down into that, into that you know, structure, that, that mm-hmm. matrix. I just, I just think it's so cool. I, I mentioned I'm reading Plato. I'm not actually reading Plato. I'm listening to uh, The Republic on audio, and I'm getting to know Plato's voice and, and Socrates. And just to think, the, these guys living before Christ, their worldview is being shaped um, by th- this same – oh, okay, so here, so – these man, we are we are so over time, but I have to ask you. These are coming from me, okay? Two okay. questions. So sure. one, I just want to get you on record saying this because I want I want this coming from a scholar, not just from me. So this a can, football question or what? <laughs> no, this one's easy. This one's very easy. The the demons that Jesus cast out, and when we think about demon quote unquote possession or demonization today, were they the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim who? whose bodies died in the flood, but now they live on, and and that's who the low-level demons who do the demon possession today, is that is that who they are? Yes. Every every second temple period text affirms that, and if that sounds like crazy town, which, you know, it should sound like crazy town, you wonder, where is that in the Bible? Well, there are Old Testament texts that have the Rephaim in Sheol, in the underworld, hell, as it were, so that, you know, this, this, is, the, this is the string they're pulling Okay, and the Rephaim were, you know, one of the names for the giant clans. So it, it, it is, you get vestiges of, this, vestiges of this in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, one of the more common terms that we don't ask questions about is unclean spirits. Now, in the Demons book, I cite a book that was actually a dissertation by uh, Wallen, I think his last name is W-A-H-L-E-N. Un, why, why are demons called unclean spirits? Because in the Levitical worldview of clean and unclean, that which is unclean is the product of a forbidden mixture. That's why. And there you go. So even in a phrase that simple that it sh- you know, shows up in the Gospels, if you go out and you, and you look at wider Second Temple period thinking, you're going to find that, oh, they're unclean spirits because they come from a forbidden mixture. Mm-hmm. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls calls them bastard spirits, because that's what they are. You know, I mean, it, this is this is how they, they looked at this. Sometimes you call them watcher spirits, though. That tripped me up a little bit in your book. Did you just mean, did you call them that because that's where they're, de- they're descended from, the watchers? In, in, in Enoch, again, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be talking about Enoch or Enochian material, you know, which is a second temple period is the intertestamental period. Uh, the book we call First Enoch, or the Book of Enoch, a little inaccurately, because there's three Enoch. Okay, that book is a product of that period, and then there are books that are like Enoch in terms of the content. Was any know. of that book written by Enoch? Like maybe the. What, no, what, what so. about when when uh, Jude cites what he seems to believe is a quote from Enoch? Well, it, it is a quote from Enoch. You know, he cites First Enoch one nine. Uh, which, which is serviceable to Jude because what what First Enoch one nine does is it combines several um, 
day of the Lord phrases and ideas from the Old Testament. So it's a shortcut for Jude to quote that instead of two or three different passages. So Enoch really did say that quote. Yeah, yeah, Pro that, that is that is in the book of Enoch. It's First Enoch one nine. I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, did the actual person Enoch there, actually no, say that? Right. There, there's there's no way to to connect the person Enoch with the book we know as First Enoch. Okay, so Judas, Judas, referring so, to it, he's making a literary reference. Making he's, a literary reference, just like just like when we say Daniel said, well, you know, then you quote the book of Daniel. Yeah. Okay. Or Isaiah said, well, nobody had a tape recorder. I mean, it, it, it's just referring to something that the prophet wrote down. And Enoch okay. was considered a prophetic figure both in the Bible and you know in the wider wider Judaism. So. But, but uh, Isaiah is historically accurate, though. I, I, I'm trying to figure out, is is Enoch, is any part... Do we, do we know Daniel wrote the book of Daniel? Yes. How? Does it ever uh, say that? The, the answer would be no. Well, <laughs> okay, no, no, I, I see what you're saying, but the the person of Daniel was an actual historical person. Yeah, I think Enoch... Yeah. Enoch was historical too, but just because they did or didn't write a book about them. Oh, sure. Question. Okay, okay. So, so where I'm trying to make a delineation though is Daniel we know is authoritative. It's God breathed. It's part of the biblical canon. And whether or not he wrote the book, the the accounts of what happened to him in his life are true. It's canonical material. Whereas with Enoch, we we have all this writing and cer certainly a lot of it seems to have been written. Probably all of it seems to have been written, you know, in that second temple period. But, but um, is anything in there historically factually accurate about what happened to the actual Enoch? Like, was there a tradition that came from yeah. the antediluvian period that, that, that was brought forth into that period? The, 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 the short answer to that is, a number of things that are said about Enoch in Enochian material are either derived from the short excerpt in Genesis 5 mm -hmm. or the figure in Genesis 5 that corresponds to the Sumerian king list. It's said about that guy who is the parallel you know, to which Enoch corresponds yeah. between those two traditions, the biblical okay. Mesopotamian. And then there's other stuff that's just, you know, it doesn't come from anywhere. It's just like contrived and made up or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, people wonder about, you know, Enoch, well, you know, is it, should we spank Jude because he quoted Enoch, you know, a non-canonical source? I don't think Enoch belongs in the canon. Okay. Thank you. Okay, good. Yeah. I mean, so, book, so, a Someone book, just got really disappointed now that you said right. that. Well, a, a, a book does not have to be canonical to be useful. Right. I mean, biblical writers read books. See, the, the, I understand why the discussion is what it is about Enoch, because you had a few early church fathers that fought for its inclusion, you know, in the canon, and, you know, Tertullian, Irenaeus, whatever, okay? So you, you had a few of these guys that, that really went to bat for it and, and lost, I think, providentially, they, they, they lost. But nobody had asked the same question about the Old Testament writers that quote the Baal cycle. Oh, is the Baal cycle canonical? 
Is Enuma Elish canonical? Right. Is the wisdom of Amenemopa canonical? But you know why they don't ask that question? Because nobody knows they quote that stuff. Mm. Okay, you know, if, if you were a more diligent, you know, Bible student, you know, and you drilled down into the really nerdy stuff, you know, like, like exegetical commentaries and whatnot. And if you do, good for you, because I'm a nerd too. All right. If you do that, you realize Old Testament writers quote this stuff. Why do they do that? Because they assume that their audience knows it. They assume that their audience has either read it or heard it. And they have a theological bone to pick with Baal. They have a theological bone to pick with some other deity. Yeah. And yeah. so they quote the material to create the connection in the mind, the bridge, and then they start poking Baal in the eye. Okay? Yeah. That's why well, that's, they do it. It's, it's a polemic strategy that biblical writers use. You know, so it this quote, quoting non-biblical stuff by biblical writers is actually fairly common. We cool. just don't hear about much of it except when it comes to Enoch because it's more recent and then it has this this church history history to it. Yeah. Um the uh, I've got one more question I've got to ask you, but I want to just share this comment from Christian Shelton. He says the Book of Enoch is like the Second <laughs> Temple version of the unseen realm. So there you, know you go. What? You're in writing about this stuff. Yeah, you know, you know what? That there's a lot of truth to that. Because <laughs> I mean, I I'm just I'm just following books they read. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Science. Okay. One one more question. I I I've I've got to get your answer to. I'm going to kick myself if I don't, and that's this. So the Greeks knew about the distribution of the nation's allotment, uh, uh, you know, allotting them to the gods. The uh, the Babylonians seem to know about these things. The um, and then and then you've got like in the Pentateuch, you've got creation narratives um, that you know, accurately describe what happened in the Garden of Eden. My question is this, and it's a twofold question. How how did Moses get his information for the creation story and, and, and those early, you know, Genesis 1 through 6, 1 through 11? And then how in the world did the Greeks and the Sumerians and the Babylonians and the, the Egyptians, how did they get all this information as well? Because we get it through scripture, through the Bible, but mm -hmm. like, did this all used to be recorded in Alexandria and when the library burned, we lost it all, but thank God for scripture or like, where was this stuff recorded that everybody well, had access to it? Initially, I mean, it's very common to assume that before writing, nobody was communicating or learning anything. Well, sure. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Okay. Before writing, people talked. Mm-hmm. Okay, you have oral history, you have, and, and oral history is a big deal because it, it takes phenomenal memory, you know, to, to record the story of a people or a place or whatever it is. So just because something gets written down later doesn't mean that generations of people had not heard it before. The, the, the opposite conclusion is really what's true. You know, they're, they're telling their stories and stories about the world and about God or the gods. And, and they're doing this all the time, okay? pre-literate, non-literate cultures today do it. It's, it's sort of like a human reflex, okay, to appreciate you know, history and tell your story, okay? So that, that, that's part of this. I mean, the, 
you know, when things do get written down, then that, that in most cultures leads to the decline, you know, of an oral culture tradition, because now we have writing, what do we need to you know, do all this memory work for? It's, it's over there in that tablet, okay? So there are whole books, and I think the best one, I hesitate to recommend it because it's hard to find and it's expensive, but I, I will. It's by M.L. West called The East Face of the Helicon, H-E-L-I-C-O-N. It's about how ancient Near Eastern worldview and literature and religion and story filters down to the Greco-Roman world. Okay, it's not the only book like it, but it, it's probably the most dense, uh, you know, full of detail. You know, West was a classicist, and this was his specialty, the interconnection between the ancient Near East and Greece. What's the name of that book again? The East Face of the Helicon, H-E-L-I-C-O-N. It's by M.L. West. Now, you know, so, so just generally, you have... You know, you have oral tradition, you have things getting codified in writing. Why would it make sense to have this cross-fertilization of worldview and history, these ideas? Well, it's simple. It's the Mediterranean. People are running into each other all the time. They have conversations. You know, you, and, and that can happen by trade. It can happen by travel. It often happens because of warfare. You know when people are deported in different parts of the world. I mean, th this is a this is a natural outcome of human discourse on all sorts of levels. That you get this this cross pollination or cross fertilization of, of ideas and, and whatnot. Now, as for the specific Moses question, I I personally believe that Genesis one through eleven was not written by Moses, or if it was, was heavily edited at a later time, specifically during the exile. You know, Moses isn't memorizing cuneiform tablets or bringing a, a, you know, a trunk full of them along with the Ark of the Covenant, you know, when he leaves Egypt, okay? He's not doing that. And some of the stuff that, that is Babylonish or even, you know, Egyptian, it's mostly Babylonish context in Genesis 1 through 11. Some of it is very specific. You know, mimicking stanzas of Enuma Elish or the Atrahasis epic and stuff like that. You you actually need a scribe who's looking at one text and saying, "Okay, I'm going to double down on this point." You know, this isn't the way it happened or the way we should think about this. Here's what happened. You know, this sort of thing. So I I think it was either heavily edited during the exile or Genesis one to eleven was was added to a preamble. I'm not a traditional mosaic authorship guy. I'm also not a JEDP guy. I think JEDP is based on circular reasoning. And, yeah, it's, and, and that, it's been, I, that was not a good day in grad school when I su suggested that. <laughs> um, you know, it, you, you just, you don't need the, the polar opposites. You just don't. I, th I think you know we're we're perfectly fine in, in presuming there was a guy named Moses, who the people in Egypt, even though they weren't writing stuff down, or maybe they did. I mean, we don't know. We're not told that nobody wrote anything down in, in Egypt. But at the very least, they're telling the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They know their stories. They know Joseph. 
it, it's quite it's quite easy for someone who knows their history to later on put it into writing. Why couldn't Moses have done that? He's a trained scholar for his day. I mean, he grew up in the wisdom of you know, the knowledge of Egypt. He gets the best education possible because of his position in Pharaoh's household. He knows the stories of his people. You know, he, he probably, I think he's a little weak theologically because he's raised in Pharaoh's house, but he knows, he's heard of Yahweh. He knows the stories about Yahweh and their ancestors and, and whatnot. You know, he, he needs an encounter with a burning bush to straighten him out. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, he's got his head filled with lots of other stuff too. So, you know, it, it's a very human, you know, thing. I, I don't see any problem with there being uh, a, a mosaic core to the Pentateuch that gets added later. But even I, if it came through that process, it still kind of breathed that. What was that? Uh, even if it came through that process of later editing, it the whole thing is still God-breathed. It, it, it is. I mean, you know, the, the biblical writers use sources all the time. You have, you have multiple hands, you know, working on the text whose names we'll never know. And we dishonor by pretending they didn't exist. You know, the, the Bible is not a channeled book. That's for UFO cults, all right? Yeah, and and that's that's like the Quran. That's what they, that's what Muslims believe exactly. about the Quran. Yeah. You know, it is not that. So I, I'm what used to be called a supplementarian. I think hmm. there was a mosaic core to what we know as the Pentateuch that, that gets things accrued to it over time. It, it, it's right to call it the Law of Moses because it's all associated with the Mosaic period except for Genesis 1 to 11. But again, that's the preamble. Everybody kind of knows that. Um, you know, it, it's substantially mosaic. I mean, you do have things in it that change from Exodus to Deuteronomy. You know, and if, if God is whispering in Moses' ear, you know, for one book, why, why isn't it the same in the other book? You know, it, I mean, you have, it's like the synoptic gospel. Sure, yeah. You have this stuff going on all the time. But I think when, when we're taught to think of the Bible as a channeled book, that, that has no human process or, or really, you know, I hate to say it, no no human involvement at all. It's like we, we assume that the writer's mind goes blank and his, his arm just starts waving and he wakes up and looks down at a scroll and says, oh, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, right. You know, I, I hope I did good today. I can't wait to read it. You know, it, it God providentially prepared the life of every person mm -hmm. who would ever write or, or put into a coherent form, you know, editing work, every hand that would ever touch every biblical book, okay, God was in it. He doesn't just work in zaps, you know, zap yeah. this guy and out comes Habakkuk, you know. Well, you know you're, you're kind of speaking a little bit like a Calvinist here, I, I must say, Mike, uh, yeah, that's, that's a heavy emphasis on God's sovereignty there. It, it is, but it's still back-ending it, you know. Okay. God is, God is perfectly capable of of intervening in the process at any time to make sure that he was satisfied with the outcome. Amen. I mean, he has to be satisfied. It has to serve his purpose. You know, I, I tell, I used to tell students, I don't believe in holy staplers. Okay. You know, we, we have this idea that, you know, Ezekiel goes, you know, goes around and he's, he's preaching and we know somebody's writing this stuff down, you know, probably, you know, the people who follow him, the school of the prophets or whatever, you know, plus he's entertaining, you know, why wouldn't he have a following? Sure. So at the end of Ezekiel's life, here's what didn't happen. You don't have a guy, you know, like maybe his, his chief follower or student or his buddy say, look, you know, the prophet's dead now and that's terrible. 
I want all of you who ever heard a sermon and wrote some of it down, we're going to meet tomorrow in you know, 24 hours, bring it with you. And then the next day, everybody shows up with their little stack or their little scroll, and, and the guy gathers it and you know straightens it out, makes sure it, it's even on all the ends, and says, who's got the stapler? It's absurd. Right. This is not how books get written. People don't talk in chiasms, all right, where you, where you see this all over Scripture. They don't talk in acrostics like the Psalms. This right. is intentional editorial compositional activity by drum roll please people okay it's very human prepared them for the task and they did it well yeah oh that's good and that and that uh you know my, um, my brother and i talk about this all the time um uh, sort of privately we have a, a, a podcast that we do on thursdays but um we talk about how god is an author and the characters that God writes, you know, Shakespeare's characters are very compelling. You know, uh, Frank Grisham's characters are very compelling. God's characters are people. And the way that, you know, God, God, God writes this, oh, you, know, you know, like, how did that work out? Never expected that. You know? Right. Right. And, and I, I have this, um, this article that I wrote last year at some point talking about the foreshadowing in the Bible and how, you know, outside of even just a direct prophecy, there's all this foreshadowing yeah. that's not exactly prophecy, but it's like illusions that don't make any sense at the time. And then right. you know, <laughs> 1,500 years later, Jesus does something and it's like, oh, that's what was going on there? So like when, Abra when Abraham says God will provide the lamb, but then a ram gets caught in the bush and you think that's all there is to it. But then 1,500 years later, John the Baptist goes, behold, the lamb of God. And yeah. you realize, oh, God did provide the lamb. It's just a little different than how I expected, you know? Yeah, you'll, you'll find when you read Unseen Realm that I, I think prophecy, prophetic speech, when it, when it was truly predicted, was deliberately cryptic. Yes. I, I take what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 seriously that had the rulers of this world, you know, supernatural evil, known what the outcome would have been they never would have crucified the Lord because that that's the thing that has to happen. Talk about never, that in yeah. They, they never would have done that. They're not stupid. Only so, in hindsight, you can look back and right, see what he was doing. Right. So you can, and, and you know, there are a lot of people who, a lot of scholars, even in the evangelical world that want, that want the new Testament writers to come off as though they're, they're either making stuff up outright or they're innovating too much. Okay, I don't take that view. Okay, what, what I see going on is you have an Old Testament passage pre-Jesus. You know, there's there's two or three ways we could take that. Don't really know which. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum of possibilities here. Now, post-Jesus, we look back and say, oh, okay, it was that one. Right, right. Okay, we've got to figure it out now. We yeah. couldn't have done that before, but now we get clarity. The, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son exactly. or or is it the young maiden oh it turns out it's virgin right yeah i mean in in, in jesus case it's very obvious that, that mary is a sexual virgin you know and people will say in isaiah if you keep reading isaiah 7 and this is true you know isaiah 7 8 9 it says that referencing the child before the child is able to eat solid food you know you, the, the problem here that's threatening the king and, and Jerusalem is going to be taken care of. So, 
you know, it, it, there's a child referent in Isaiah to the prophecy. You know, we, we don't know what, what the sexual status of the, you know, of the Alma is, and it could certainly be virgin because Alma is used with Betulah of Rachel in Genesis. Both words used of the same woman, and it's very clear she is a sexual virgin. So I'm sorry, Bishop Spong, you didn't know your Bible, okay? Right. You know, you, you could have just looked in your Old Testament. It started with Genesis, and you'd have run into it. Um, you know, we, we don't know what, what the nature of the woman in Isaiah's day was, you know, who has this child. and, and It's still a prophetic thing because the line of David, as you pointed out earlier, was, was saved, was spared. You know, the, the king is a dynastic descendant of David. So it's God's way of preserving the dynasty, you know. So and all those things factor into messianic interpretation anyway, you know, because Jesus is the ultimate outcome here. But yeah, Mary, it's very clear, you know. Oh, Parthenos could be a cultic prostitute. Well, yeah, okay. But then why do you say that Joe, you know, Mary for Jesus? You know, might might we be able to get a, a nugget of truth? from that to help us understand which meaning of the word is intended from why i lost it for a second you said why does it say that joseph did what? not know mary right. until after jesus was born why why throw in that detail right yeah. you know come on you know it, it it's just it's just really lame and it, it you know i maybe i've just spent too much time on the internet and i try not to spend much time on the internet anymore yeah. but the, the, the amount of stuff at this level of stupid that, that troubles Christians is appalling. The, the, the fact that you have so many Christians that they'll hear, well, you know, this isn't the normal word for virgin. It's Alma, young maiden, Betula is the sexual virgin. I mean, this, this kind of stuff that you run into on the Internet, and it, and it, it troubles people. It, it even crushes some. Yeah. That they yeah. can't, they don't have the skills or even the inclination or the know-how or whatever. I don't even know what the right word is to go look and find out that you know this is really a dumb argument. Yeah, that's appalling. Well, this is why we need uh, teachers like Apollos, who used to go into the synagogues and greatly encourage the believers by not yeah. by convincing all the uh, the Jewish leaders that Jesus was Messiah, but by encouraging the, those who had believed by, yeah. by refuting their arguments. He didn't convince them, but he refuted their arguments. And um, that's something like what we're trying to do with this podcast and with, yeah, with it, other work we're doing. I agree. I agree. You know, it, you know, I, I get email all the time, you know, should I leave my church or I've already left my church? You know, it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not going to ever tell anybody to leave their church. But the, the fact of the matter is if you aren't being fed, you got two choices. You either bail, you know, you have three choices. You either bail, you live with it, and just get sit there and be frustrated, or you go out and you try to feed yourself. I mean, and, and you live in a day and age, fortunately, where, okay, the Internet's the wild, wild west. You may get something that's real garbage. Okay, I understand yeah. that. I understand it's unvetted, but there's a lot of good stuff there, too. Right. Test the spirits. Yep, yep. I mean, you, you, you got you to gotta do something. I, I'd rather have you do something and run into something crazy once in a while than just quit, you know, or leave the faith. Um, we did have one more question come in. Um, 
do you do you subscribe yourself or do you describe yourself flowing closer to historical grammatical uh, hermeneutic or historical critical the answer is yes okay <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see any I don't see any need to have to pick okay those things you know scholars Can you explain the difference between those two well it, it, in, in some respects it, it depends on what's in the head of the questioner Mm-hmm. You know, because historical critical, some could use that and, and, and not realize that there are different areas of criticism. There's source criticism, there's redaction criticism, there's form slash literary criticism. You know, that those are the, the big three. There's other ones. Uh, that's, you know, I, I'm not big on source criticism. Source criticism, I hate to say it, but I think source criticism is kind of a waste of time. Really? Yeah, what, you know, what is that? That's where you you try where, to identify. Where, where, yeah, where you try to identify the sources of of like the Pentateuch or, or the biblical material or whatever. At the end of the day, you don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know, and, and your method is probably going to be circular, like I think it is with JEDP or whatever. You're even on your even on your best day, you're guessing. Okay. Sure. So to me, it makes more sense to just say, "This is the text that we have. It's the text that's received." Let's try to do exegesis. So there's the historical grammatical part of the question. But I want exegesis done in context. And by context, I don't mean my context. I don't mean the context of the Catholic Church. I don't mean the context of evangelicalism or, you know, Calvinism or Puritanism or I don't. All of those contexts are by definition post-biblical, every one of them. Yeah. What I, what I want done, and it, is this historical critical? Well, I don't know, because I, I guess in some sense it is, because I want to know the biblical writer when he's writing, how can we get a sense of not just the time and occasion when he's writing something, okay, mm-hmm. but the whole worldview that he has? Yeah. You know, and that's not, but that's faithful. That's faithful to the original text. Right, right. I I I believe that that no biblical writer ever wrote a word without intent. Mm-hmm. Amen. Didn't write anything and not intend anything. I just came in and I just started writing words. Right, I had right. no intent. I had no agenda. You know, of course you did. Yeah. You have an audience that you're trying to communicate with. So the the more I can understand how this guy this writer thinks and not mm-hmm. just oh we used lamps in biblical days you know archaeology we use pottery you know, okay great wonderful you know <laughs> let's expand that to to worldview how we think about nature how we think about the world our predisposition to a supernatural world that is mm-hmm. animate and active and and you know that that opposes us you know all these things that we we don't really gravitate toward as moderns okay that's the guy i want in my head yeah so yes, I want to do historical, grammatical, exegetical work, but you can't divorce that from situating the results of that in a context. Mm-hmm. And I am far less interested in post-biblical contexts than I am in contemporary contexts you know, to the biblical writer. Yeah. That's what I'm shooting for. Yeah, no, that that's really helpful. And just for anyone listening who doesn't know what JEDP is, it's a it's a school of thought that basically tries to look at the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, and tries to figure out which 
uh, assumes that there were multiple authors and tries to determine uh, which author or group of authors wrote which section of the Bible. There's the Jawistic and the uh, priestly and, and so on and so forth. Uh, um, it's it's uh, uh, largely a school of interpretation that I believe has been debunked, but some people do still kind of cling to it's, it. It's still the dominant view of, of biblical scholarship. You know, in a nutshell, it's Moses didn't write a word of this if there right. was a Moses. Right, the, right. The Pentateuch in its entirety is the result of sources right. that would post-date a historical Moses by five, six, seven hundred years. Mm -hmm. So there's really no mosaic attachment in any sort of meaningful you know, sense to it in terms of, of producing this material. Nineteenth um, century was its heyday, but it, and, and so it, it became the dominant view. It, it still is, you know, if you went to like a secular grad school, sure. just, just assumed. Um, to me, it, it not only is it is it guilty of circular reasoning, and I'll, let me give examples, you know. Okay, one of the criterion is the name of, of the deity, Yahweh or Elohim. I actually asked this in a graduate school, you know, seminar, and I'm going to tell you the answer I got. This is a this is a, an important scholar what was ultimately my advisor. I said, now, if this is one of the criteria, the divine name, what about the text of the Septuagint, which, of course, is different than the Masoretic text? Mm -hmm. What about the 100, 110, 120 instances where the divine names are reversed? Hmm. Does that matter? Like, 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 doesn't that undermine this, this criterion? Right, right. And he looked at me and he said, oh, the translator was just sloppy. That was the answer. Wow. This is a doctoral seminar. Oh, the Septuagint guy was just sloppy. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what <laughs> else can you say to that? I can tell we don't need to pursue this anymore. Yeah, right. You know, well, they're just things like that 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 you run into. It, it, I, I just I don't have a real high view of it. I, I'd rather just put the guesswork aside. Some of mm -hmm. it's interesting and entertaining. You know, yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. But this is the received text, so let's try to figure out, you know, how we should read this. But to me, that just makes more sense in terms of use of my time. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. Okay. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me on uh, a podcast that went way longer than, yeah. than oh, we I, thought. I just hope the, the pod hasn't torn anything apart. But <laughs> I, Well, um, yeah, I'll, that's I'll, true. You should probably go check on it. <laughs> uh, with a name like, with a name like Norman Bates. Yeah. yeah. There's, he's going to be up to something. Um, so thank you all for watching. Thank you for um, your participation and asking great questions. And, um, you know, at some point, Mike, we got to have you back on to do a Q&A because uh, I, I have a whole list of questions I still didn't get to. I know other people do have questions as well. And not only that, but people are going to be listening to this later on on the audio podcast starting next week, and they're going to have questions as well. So um, uh, to everyone listening, thank you again. Connect with the Think Institute simply by going to thethink.institute. You can get our whole back catalog of episodes of this podcast, the Think Podcast. You can get our uh, Tuesday two for episodes, our Monday minutes, our Worldview Wednesdays. By the way, we have a great Worldview Wednesday episode coming up tomorrow talking about the creation of Christian culture. You definitely want to check that out with Pastor Rafe and me, and we're going to be interviewing uh, Brian Sauvé. hope I'm not butchering his last name there. But, um, you know, 
check out the podcast, check us out on social media, and by all means, get Michael Heiser's book, Demons Get the Unseen Realm. I'm, I'm recommending that sight unseen just based on what I've read uh, in Demons and what I know about Dr. Heiser's work. So check out those books, and um, I know they're going to raise more questions. So you can get in touch with uh, Dr. Heiser. The um, his website has been scrolling across the bottom of this screen as we've been talking, but you can go to drmsh.com. And Mike, is there a way to get in touch with you through your through your website? Yeah, there's there's a there's a menu item, you know, to ask questions. So there is. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. Um, I certainly hope that it has been helpful for you. I know it's been really helpful for me to have all the stuff that I was looking at as a 17-year-old on the obscure message boards of the internet um, validated from an actual Bible scholar. And I'll tell you what, you go and read his book and you will find deep, dense footnotes. Mike has done his homework. He's a scholar in his, in his own right, but he cites many, many other scholars that you could go on numerous rabbit trails, just hunting down all of his footnotes. So really, really great stuff. Check it out. Go to miqlat.org. Thank you, Christian Shelton, for um, for that website as well. That's yeah. his, his nonprofit where he has his biblical teachings translated into 20 languages. And uh, you can go check that out. So thank you all for watching. That's all we have for you today. Until next time, I hope it made you think. <laughs>